Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, Robinhood, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we brought you the legend of Loftus Hall, a home in Ireland that is infamous for a story about the time the devil visited, besting the baron of the house at cards, stealing his daughter's heart, and then vanishing in a ball of fire that blasted through three floors of rooms out into the rainy night. We talked about the history of the hall and the area of Ireland that it's in. We helped you become familiar with the Loftus family members and tried to paint a picture that would take you back to that time and place. We discussed Father Brodus and his partially successful exorcism of the hall. Tonight, we move past all of that, delving further into the story and its aftermath. We'll speak with local author Chris Rush about his fictionalized book titled The Legend of Loftus Hall. Loftus Hall is still quite haunted to this day. The question is, who or what is trapped there? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The best way to drive out the devil if he will not yield to text of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Martin Luther. Join us tonight for the second and final part of our series on Loftus Hall. And we're back. That we are. We're starting tonight's show with an important, if unusual, announcement. We recently found out that Bob Gimlin of the famous 1967 Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film that everyone who's hearing this has probably seen is about to embark on a brief tour around the country. Bob is in his late 80s, and when we found out that Jeffrey Gonzalez, who hosts a YouTube show called Paranormal Central, invited Bob to an event in Fresno for just 200 people on April 6th, we knew we could not pass it up. So, if you live in or near Fresno, we're going to be there on the night of April 6th to take advantage of this chance to be in the company of a living legend. Not only in the Bigfoot community, but in the world of Astonishing Legends at large. To be absolutely clear, this is not an Astonishing Legends meetup. We're just saying we're going to be there that night, and when we bought our tickets, there were about 70 tickets left, and it's only $20 a head. All the proceeds are going to Bob, who is now a retired rancher. So even though it's not a meetup, we'll be happy to say hello to any Astonishing Legends listeners that managed to make it up to Fresno on April 6th. You can get your tickets as long as they last at eventbrite.com. Just look up Bob Gimlin, or we also have a link here in our show notes. Additionally, we created a tiny URL to make it easy to remember. Yes, just point any browser to tinyurl.com slash Gimlin. That's G-I-M. L-I-N. Maybe we'll see you there. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, one other thing. We wanted to tell all of our listeners about a new podcast aggregation app that we recently found and love. It works so much better than anything else that's out there. It's called 
Himalaya. Yeah, this app is great, and you can download it for free for any mobile device you have. I put it on my iPhone a few weeks ago, and I am not looking back. It just works so much better. It has multi-speed playback, which obviously is a must, because our shows are so interminably mm. long. It also does a really good job of recommending other shows you might like, and you can even create playlists of your favorite shows that you can share with friends. Yeah, the latest offerings from other apps, which shall remain nameless, are pretty clunky if you ask us. So grab Himalaya today. Oh, and do us a favor, follow us on their app. We've only got like 150 followers there right now. We can do better than that. The more followers we have, the more new listeners will find us. Yes, grab the Himalaya app and give us a follow on it as soon as you get it installed. And last note of tonight, we're approaching two dark weeks in a row, folks. This happens once or twice a year just by the nature of our annual schedule. So it's going to be a little quiet on our main feed, but we will be doing some bonus stuff on Patreon during this time for our patrons, so keep an eye on that. We'll be back April 13th with a fascinating new show with special guest Brandon Masulo, whose new book, The Ghost Studies, analyzes how apparitions might actually work technically. And we'll be talking about the infinitely fascinating spontaneous crisis apparition as well. Oh, and by the way, if you're Missing us over these next two weeks, we recently did a guest appearance on the podcast Dungeon Masters Block. That released just last weekend on March 17th. Look for it wherever you find your podcast. Okay, let's get back to Loftus Hall. So when we left off last week, we were talking about the ghost of Ann Tottenham and how many people had run into her or tried to run into her with no success in the tapestry room. That took place over not only just a period after she had passed away, but right. well into at least 100 years later. According to a lot of people, still continues to this day. They're still seeing what they believe to be the ghost of Anne Tottenham, plus a bunch of other things. There seems to be a lot of residents still floating around at Loftus Hall. Well, it has been called the most haunted house in Ireland. Because of all the hauntings for a couple of hundred years and maybe a thousand years before that. Well, being a real person from a real family, real people die and they have to be buried somewhere. So where did Anne Tottenham end up? Where is she? Well, sometimes they get cremated then you wouldn't necessarily find anything. Well, usually there's an urn sometimes. That's true. Uh, you know, there's a plaque somewhere. And these are prominent people, you know. They are nobility of the area, so that's usually pretty well recorded, which is one benefit to studying this family tree. Somebody has made a pretty detailed family tree history, as well as having a family pedigree, these folks being the barons of Eli, of the area of the peninsula. So, and in addition to just the family tree of who died and was married and to whom, there is a family pedigree with this landed gentry in that somebody's doing a family history as it goes along. So no one really knew where Anne Tottenham was buried until the 20th century. Well, as the story goes, from that moment when she had that terrible experience, whatever it was, she would never recover. She suffered extreme depression, loneliness, and it's said, at least in the family history and according to the story, that she languished searching, hoping for the stranger to return. I don't know how she would react if he returned, if she would spring back to life and suddenly be chipper and cheery. But he never did, at least in physical form, whoever he was. And what happened to her, according to every story we hear, is that, yes, there was a long period of at least a few years where she was suffering extreme depression. And nowadays, it might be called bipolar disorder. We might have other labels back then. Melancholy. Yeah, it's a general term. And they yeah. didn't know how to deal with it. So what do you do with somebody? You just stick them in a room. You give them food, place to go to the bathroom, and put them in a room. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's said that she was either given food and water regularly, but refused to move. 
or another version of the story is that she refused food and drink. Well, you're not going to last very long. So I tend not to believe that aspect where she just would not eat or drink. Yeah, this was before and lasted you for could, years. Yeah, this yeah. was before you could provide sustenance to people without their consent, which now you can do. But right back it's, then, you could not. Yeah, exactly. So if she is going to languish for years, which does seem to be the case, she was probably eating and drinking, but again, suffering extreme depression, where she was either confined to the tapestry room that she loved and would stare out the window, and the more popular version, the romantic version of the story is that she sat in a chair and for most of the time would not move, just staring out the window at the view she loved, waiting for this dark stranger to return. Another version of the story is that, well, that's pretty unlikely. So she was probably just confined to a room and maybe she was a family embarrassment. They didn't want her being seen. They didn't want company seeing her when they came over because she was stark raving mad. So she was kind of squirreled away or she just didn't want to come out. And that aspect features into another story we're going to cover here. But what's the reality of this? The reality is that it's probably not so much the romantic version, but we don't know. Because a lot of these elements to the story seem like a very Victorian fantasy. The forlorn, beautiful young woman waiting for her lover to return, and he never does. And he's kind of a mystery, and she dies a tragic death, just of a broken heart, essentially. And yeah, these are great elements to a, a Victorian Gothic story, you know, but we don't know how many of these aspects of this very strange ending to her life actually happened. Really, do people sit in a chair for years and years and don't move? Is that possible? One version of the story is that she would languish for 10 years before dying, either sitting in a chair or in a room and not moving. Anne Tottenham's birth and death are recorded, but her burial site was a mystery. There are no records of where she was buried, at least in the family story, so no one really knew. That is, until the 1940s, when the door of the family crypt was vandalized, and workmen were called to repair the crypt door, seal it back up, permanently this time, and I think they were going to pour concrete over it so that nobody could get into it. There's really no reason to get inside. Well, to repair the door, they had opened it, and they looked inside at all the different family coffins, and they noticed something really different with one of them. The lid to the coffin was peaked or sloped up. So it was raised much higher than the rest of the family coffins. Right. So in other words, it did not have a flat top. It did not have a flat or one of those commonly seen curved or domed lids to a coffin that we're accustomed to. This one seemed to be unusually high. And what would be the reason for that? Well, what they believed at this time and I'm not sure how they confirm this, but the reason for the tall lid on the coffin is that Anne had actually been sitting for so many years that her legs had fused into a sitting position. Her joints had locked up, her tendons and ligaments had fused, or at least atrophied that she could not bend her legs straight, and they had to bury her in a special coffin. So what do you think about that? Because in the story, the one I've seen most, she was about 28 years old when she died. So still a young woman. I mean, it makes sense. It jives with the story. We don't really know why she would have been in that position. Like you said, maybe she sat down and maybe she had been in a fetal position for decades, for all we know. And that just was how she wound up. That's the story here, that eventually she stayed so long in a prone, lying, or sitting position that her leg joints had locked together, fused, if you will, into that L shape. and they don't want to bury you on your side. They want to bury you on your back. Well, and this, and this is interesting in that 
what these workers supposedly saw after the vandalism of the crypt was they saw a coffin that connects all this together. The details about what they saw are a little sketchy, though. I mean, this is kind of hearsay. It's not written down. We don't have names of workers. All we have is this story, which could be apocryphal. We don't even know if it was the Tottenham Crypt, do we? For sure. I believe it was the family crypt. So the Loftus family or the Tottenhams, they merged. They combined as a family or two family names into one. Right. They believe they know where the other family members are or were laid to rest. But I don't believe anyone knew where Anne ended up. That's why it was a mystery. Well, I look forward to uh, asking Chris Rush about this since he's been there. (laughs) Well, we don't know for certain if that's actually her coffin. That is one thing that Rick Whelan in his documentary pointed out. And he seemed to believe it was true. And it was only 1940s. Yeah, that's true. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. It's definite. But, you know, like I said, I couldn't find any newspaper articles about that. That's probably the only place you might see it. But it might be just family lore, too. You know what I'm saying? Part of the family story that they didn't really want to tell a lot of people because they're still not proud about it. Whatever happened to her, it does sound like she did suffer some neglect. What would you say to people that would say that nobody could sit in that position for that long? It's just impossible. No one could be <laughs> like that that long. You were talking about food and drink and going to the bathroom earlier. Yeah, all that stuff. And neglect. Yeah. Well, I know you might think that that's impossible. Nobody can sit for years on end in a single position. It's ridiculous. She would have to move around. Therefore, her legs would not fuse like that. Well, guess what? Of course, there are stories like that in the news and one from not that long ago. There is the story of Pam Babcock of Ness City, Kansas. This happened around February 27th of 2008. And of course, the strangeness <laughs> is what made me remember it. Pam's boyfriend, Corey McFerrin, 36 years old at the time, had called the Ness County Sheriff's Office and told them he thought there was something wrong with his girlfriend, Pam, who was 35 at the time. McFerrin had told Ness County Sheriff Brian Whipple, you catching the joke there? Yes, Mr. Whipple. <laughs> Older folks will, yes, yeah, Mr. Whipple. Very old folks. You remember the old Charmin toilet paper commercials? Yes. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar, you can find them online. Listeners 40 and over might remember this really famous commercial of the time where there is a harried grocery store manager named Mr. Whipple, and people were coming in to squeeze all of his toilet paper because it was so soft, the Charmin. He's like, please, please don't squeeze the Charmin. Because it was ruining his stock. Yes. If you make dimples in it, then nobody wants toilet paper that has been touched by somebody else first. So that was a long running commercial gag. Yeah. I thought it was really funny and ironic. The sheriff here was Mr. Whipple. Tangent within a tangent here. Yes. I, yeah. I'm sorry. I did not say tangent alert. I had yeah. that written into the notes. So yeah. it ties in because the problem with Corey's girlfriend is that she had been sitting on the toilet for two years and refused to come out of the bathroom. And he told police that he brought her food and water every day and asked her every day if she would come out. And her response was always, well, maybe tomorrow. And then finally, McFerrin called the police. And when they arrived, they found her clothed, sitting on McFadden's toilet with her sweatpants around her thighs. And she told police that she didn't need any help. She was okay. And she didn't want to leave. Well, on the plus side, she didn't have to get up to go to the bathroom. No, I thought about that. And it's convenient. You got the whole cycle right there. Food, water, bathroom. But obviously there's some mental and emotional problems going on here, which they were not aware of. And I think the boyfriend was not capable of handling because she initially refused emergency medical services, but she was finally convinced to go to the hospital by the first responders and McFerrin, her boyfriend, that she needed to be checked out. This is not normal. 
and Sheriff Whipple said that Pam appeared somewhat disoriented and her legs looked like they had atrophied because after two years, her skin had fused around the toilet seat. Yeah. Because if you don't move, what happens is that you get sores. Those sores had adhered to the material of the seat and they had to take a pry bar, pry the seat off, and the seat went with Pam to the hospital. And as Sheriff Whipple said, she was not glued, she was not tied, she was just physically stuck by her body. So she was taken to a hospital in Wichita, about 150 miles southeast of Nest City, where she again refused to cooperate with doctors or law enforcement investigators. Now, her boyfriend, Corey, didn't give an explanation at the time as to why he waited two years to call for help, but a neighbor, James Ellis, had known Pam since she was a kid, and he hadn't seen her for at least six years outside of the house. Ellis said that Pam had a tough childhood and her mother had died at an early age and was usually kept inside the house as she grew up. So the police were then going to send a report to the county attorney to determine if any charges should be brought against McFerrin for abuse or neglect, because it's a touchy one, because what was his responsibility? I don't think mentally he was capable of knowing what to do, so he didn't do anything. And she, you know, had her own emotional and probably psychiatric problems. And that's a case of like, well, I don't know what to do. She says she's going to come out tomorrow. Maybe she will. And after two years, finally, it's like, I think she's maybe not coming out. Yeah. And she didn't want to come out. In any case, it's a weird story. But there's kind of a happy ending because McFerrin, later that October, had won $20,000 in the state lottery twice. Oh, good for weird. him. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy. That's my McFerrin. <laughs> I knew joke. I didn't even make a note. I also, knew you were going to say that. Also, he's Irish descent. Corey McFerrin. Well, perhaps. The point of these stories is that it is possible for somebody to sit that long, but there are definite physical, you know, maladies that happen when you do that. Yeah. So somebody experiencing major emotional trauma or some kind of trauma that just that's over the line for them, it breaks them. Something like this, that dramatic can happen because it's said that Pam and Corey had an argument. That's what sparked it. He wasn't abusive. I mean, he, he did get charged. McFerrin received six months probation after pleading no contest to misdemeanor mistreatment of a dependent adult. Maybe that could have applied to Anne back in the day because they're not really capable. There's no psychiatric medication, pharmaceuticals to help with that condition. You just hope that they get better. You know, they snap out of it. And she yeah, and we did. can't know if there was malice or not or how it all played out. No. Now, or how they would have dealt with it at that early stage in mental health assessment. There definitely seems to be, at least with a realistic approach to this story, some neglect that happened. But was it intentional? Was it malice? Was it family pride? Was it just not knowing what to do? That does seem to be the case because she died pretty young and from all accounts, not mentally healthy. There was something wrong with her where she did not leave that room. Well, anyway, back to Anne Tottenham. As we mentioned before, her ghostly apparition appears nightly, or did around the time, which would be freaky if it did happen nightly, because most hauntings, as we've seen, don't happen very often. It's very sporadic, so you can kind of live with it. But if this is happening nightly, that's really going to unhinge you. And <laughs> apparently that's what happened with the staff they started to refuse to work there. It was so frequent and you can't get any rest. You don't want to work. You don't want to be there at night. And it said that she would roam the whole house from the scullery room to the gun room, the banquet hall, the stables. And every night at dawn, she would disappear into the tapestry room until she reappeared the next night. 
Also, the staff was freaked out because they claimed to hear horses' hooves galloping around the outer perimeter of the gate. And that's not just Anne. That could be the devil. Yeah. So that's extra freaky to them. That's an interesting idea, too, because it's like he's back for her but can't get in. And she's in the house and can't get to him. And they're locked in this perpetual, you know, separation. For eternity. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good element of a Victorian story. Because it's the devil. Well, you know, a lot of times we have uh, that Fox show, Lucifer. He's a romantic, handsome fellow. I just happen to be the devil, you know, and he's, he's very alluring and not that bad. He just has to do his job. But he's back because he loves Anne. That's another offshoot to the story is that they were actually in love. It could have been a real person, a real young man, and he did fall for Anne. It was mutual. That's why it was such a heartbreaking story for both of them. He was sent away or had to run away never returned, maybe wanted to. But in this ghostly version, he's returning to get her soul or something. And of course, the other thing that the family has to worry about with their name is word getting out, that all Mm. this weird stuff is happening, because that's obviously not great for your 55 generations of Loftuses or whatever on that family tree, which... If you're not trying to sell the place, it doesn't really matter. That I don't know. No, it does. It affects the family name. It's like they're with the Loftuses. They have this mansion, but it's haunted. The devil goes over there all the time. That's kind of the reason why I'm not sure why you would make that up to cover up an emotionally disturbed family member. It's like, you know, the devil did that. It's not because of our genes. Yeah, that's not... I didn't even know what genes were then, but it's not in our blood. Right. That's not a better story than mental illness in the family. (laughs) It's to say, no, it's not mental illness. It's the devil likes to hang out at the house. Everything else is fine. Well, (laughs) you know what? Well, here's another thing. Maybe it's not that house at all. Maybe it wasn't Loftus Hall, because there's another version of the story or a variation of this story that doesn't happen at Loftus Hall at all. It happens at Tottenham Green. The Tottenham.name website features a story, or one section of it, where some claim the entire devil story happened not at Loftus Hall, but at Tottenham Green, which is about 35 kilometers or 21 miles inland to the northeast from Loftus Hall. And that version of a story, I believe, appears in a Radio Telephus, Ireland, production in 1993. Not sure about that. That was the note from the website. So maybe that version of the story does appear somewhere. The author of the website has listed in the family history that there is a tradition in the village of Taman, it's spelled T-A-G-H-M-O-N, that claims this version of the story. And I found that interesting because, as we said before, regions will take a legend and make it their own. It's like, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. It happened the way we believe it in our version. And we have the property. So we lay claim to that legend or that variation. So I found that pretty interesting because there are a few differences with that story. In this one version, the mysterious stranger took the disguise of a king's messenger. Remember back to that where it was actually more realistic? Like, yes, he's not that mysterious. He's just a messenger, young guy. And maybe that's where that version or that element of that story comes from, from this Taman version. But more significantly, after being discovered with the daughter, the stranger makes his escape through an upstairs dormer window, which apparently did not have a roof at the time. And the Taman version goes on to say that Tottenham refused to put a roof over that window so that the devil could come and go as he pleased. And that might connect with a part of the story that says the hole, the one at Loftus, was never able to be repaired successfully for a very long time. Right. Yeah, so there's a part of the story there where it's like, well, there's still a hole there because it's evidence. It adds to the credibility of the story that there's a hole that's apparent. And in this one version, the family's like, no, no, uh, he should come and go as he pleases. 
because what if you bar his entry? Maybe he gets mad. That is one version of the story. However, the author goes on to say that in 1913, James Cullen purchased Tottenham Green, and it seemed to be fine. He was able to repair the dormer window or make any repairs that he needed, and there was no devil trouble. But more importantly, it's not apparent why Charles Tottenham, his second wife, and Anne should have been living at Loftus Hall at the time. You know what I'm saying? As permanent residents, maybe just visitors. But it is quite certain he never lived at Tottenham Green, which had always belonged to the senior members of the family. Charles, the first Marquess, didn't succeed to the Loftus estates until a few years after Anne's death. His father, John, had lived at Tottenham Green prior to his succession. The author says that the rest of Reed's story is pretty circumstantial. So again, that comes from Reverend George Reed. And a note on that story is that, yes, Reverend Reed took an account from family members a long time ago, so closer to the story, but it's thought that maybe he was kind of zhuzhing it, adding a little bit of excitement and drama to make the story more readable. So you got to take some of these things with a grain of salt, even if it comes from an old book. I make that point all the time. I know the source is old, but it could also be incorrect in some ways. There's another version of the story, and this is a more skeptical point of view, that says that Charles Tottenham, his wife and daughter Anne, were visiting Tottenham Green, and there was a handsome young visitor. Charles caught this young visitor and Anne in an intimate situation, and the stranger fled out the dormer window mysteriously, which may have started the talk about a supernatural departure. But again, purely speculation. Well, that is a more believable story. Of course, that happens. Yeah, the basic details. See, now we've got details that make more sense, but we're in the wrong location. Possibly, but you can see why the Tottenham Green story people would say like, well, no, that sounds more reasonable, you know, that maybe he, the father caught him, he pushed past him or, you know, split, and he's running through the house, jumps out the window, and they're just not sure where he went. And to the folks at the time, well, he turned into the devil in the ball of fire and split out the dormer window, whereas he probably just jumped. But that's a long ways down. So long ways. I don't know if that that's makes broken sense. broken leg territory. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense either. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Jennifer. Now back to the show. As we're getting near the end of the series here, there's one thing that I wanted to focus in on a little bit more, and that's the hooves, because that's a recurring theme, right? In this kind of folklore that's attached to the devil and... Recurring? It's in every version of the story. That's what's interesting, because no matter where this story is told, at this place, Loftus Hall, Tottenham Green the Hellfire Club, and I'm sure there's many more stories. We're going to talk about that, right? The Hellfire Club. Oh, yeah. I definitely want to talk about that. Of course. And it's various franchises. The one element that is constant throughout is that at some point in the story, someone, in this case, Anne, but in other stories, someone sees this mysterious guy. They look down. He's got hooves. It's the devil he's found out. And it's like, up the jig is up. And he's going to take off out of there. So where did this idea of the devil having hooves come from? We would guess that this imagery is ancient, and in some ways it is. But in art and literature, it seems like, it's not that ancient. It's more popular in the late Middle Ages, it seems. But there are cases, though, of this idea of animal hooves or the devil being some part animal that is ancient. In Islamic tradition, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon. He had a palace built for her, of which the walls and floor were made of glass, and water flowed over the floor, it said. When she picked up her skirt to walk over the stream of water, people there saw that she had hairy legs like that of a goat. 
In a later Arabic tale, the mother of the Queen of Sheba, when she was pregnant with her, was craving goat meat, apparently, as pregnant women of that era are said to have done. I'm not joking. That is something I read. Oh, okay. Look, it's the desert. You, uh, you got to get some meat somewhere. She was craving goat meat. And when the queen was born, she had one normal foot and one goat's hoof. The story again appears in the Ethiopian holy book, the Kebra Nagast, where there's the story of the queen's hairy hoof appearing during her trip to see Solomon. Well, this gossipy bit of detail could be seen as a slight slam on the queen, you know, or a way to raise doubts about her beauty or make an association with something unclean or devilish. You could see it going throughout the ages in folklore that way. Did you happen to look at all into whether or not women were shaving their legs at this t- at the time of <laughs> Queen of Sheba? That's a good question. I happen to know just off the cuff here that, remember when we were looking at the Great Courses Plus and we had a whole series on Etruscan women? Yes. This is pretty ancient, and it was known then that they did shave their bodies. That's right. I and, remember you mentioning that. And yeah, I think yeah. the view at the time was that Women who had time to do that, like, well, look, la-dee-da, look at them. They got time to, you know, oil up and exercise and shave their legs. We women here have to work. You know, we don't have time for that baloney. And so I think it depends on how much hair. If you had a lot of leg hair, I think back then, as I've read from Roman graffiti, that was pointed out. I'm not going to say how. Yeah. It's it's pretty crude. (laughs) (laughs) In this way, though, I think that Yes, most women didn't have time to do that. Certainly getting implements that were that sharp to do that, it's time-consuming. You could nick yourself. It's dangerous. In this way, saying that there's a lot of it combined with like, "Eh, I think she's got a weird foot, you know, she's got a goat's hoof or some kind of animal hoof or some feature where you're deformed is not a good thing. Like I said, it's kind of a slam. And I know that the ancient Greeks, and I believe also the Romans, if you were deformed, That was not good. You were looked down upon because it was seen that you were somehow cursed by the gods and punished. So they weren't really kind to people with deformities or birth defects or anything like that. And so in this story, yeah, it's kind of an interesting way to say that, ooh, she was kind of special. There's something magical about her. Right. She's mystical in a way. Different culture and time, but uh, King Tut had a club foot, for example, which they think, though, was because of inbreeding. Oh, well, that's also a theory about this guy, our mysterious dark stranger. Right. Maybe it was just a club foot. Possibly, but you'd think it would be in a shoe, not just yeah. <laughs> hanging out on the floor on the carpet there. And that's what Anne saw and she freaked out or somehow he had a weird shoe that would have been noticed. Yeah. But going back to the concept and imagery of the devil or demons having hooves or being ungulates, this could be a morphing of creatures from European mythology called satyrs or specifically good old Pan. Remember him when we yeah, talked about giants? Yeah, of course. Giants? I was going to ask about Pan. Yeah, that's exactly what we described in our giant series. And that idea of devils in Judeo-Christian traditions. But we need to keep in mind that the imagery of Satan as having cloven hooves, like a goat, comes from outside the Christian Bible and occurs much later on in Christian artwork. Okay. Yeah, so in the hundreds of years of traditional Christian art, representations of Satan and his devils don't have cloven hooves, usually, and the earliest Byzantine imagery depicts Satan in human form. But in the Bible, the devil is described as more reptilian as a huge multi-headed, multi-horned dragon in the book of Revelation, or as a serpent. He can also appear as an angel of light. Now, there are a few early Renaissance examples of frescoes showing Satan and some demons with cloven hooves, but this doesn't seem to be the most popular representation of the era. Now, you mentioned satyrs. What are satyrs? S-A-T-Y-R-S. I don't know that word. Oh, you would certainly recognize the imagery. I would know what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. The word might be a little foreign, 
but they were popular mythological creatures in ancient Greco-Roman art and were often associated or confused with devils and were also a popular art subject in Renaissance and Baroque art and architecture of the 15th through 17th centuries. And in the periods after, it was common to show depictions of Satan and devils with a human upper half and an animal or goat-like lower half. So it's likely this idea was firmly planted in the minds of people from the 18th century Loftus Hall era. But why the cloven hoof, you ask? Why specifically that bit of uh, extremity? One idea is that because they're like the feet of pigs, which are in a general sense considered unclean or not safe to eat in Jewish and Islamic traditions. Well, what about the goat part of it? Another theory is that sheep are a representation of a good Christian practitioner due to their more docile nature, while goats with cloven hooves can be ornery, unruly, and actually pretty wild, especially during the rut. This goes back to my story about the time I got surrounded by those deer. In the, what was that? Yeah, that was-, <laughs> <laughs> that was back when, you know, my wife and I used to have a little place in Pennsylvania, and I went out to oh, watch yes. the Perseids, and I got surrounded. The rut was part of the problem there. I got surrounded by three bucks in the dark. I never saw them, but they were stomping the ground, and they were definitely ornery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> interesting uh you didn't get hurt no because i left yeah i didn't see the perseids either were they (laughs) were they pawing the ground and pounding it really and then uh, snorting yes i couldn't see them in the dark but it was they had to be several hundred pounds from because i could feel the earth shaking oh yeah yeah stomping yeah Yeah. i've had one uh stag run by me leap across the path and land and you felt the earth yeah shake and it's quite Impressive. Indeed. Well, considering the imagery, especially that of the goat or the lower half being animalistic, there is an idea that one Quora commenter, you know, that forum that answers questions, that the idea comes from the Sairim, S-A-I-R-I-M, in that it's a classification of demons in the Old Testament. Sairim means shaggy in Hebrew and can be a word for goat. Some translations of the Bible, including the King James Version, render this word as satyr. Okay. This is probably why Satan has been associated with the satyr image. That means with the cloven hooves. And this commenter says they're surprised that the description of Satan in the book of Revelation is a red dragon, and it did not become the prime symbol of the devil, this dragon imagery. However, the devil in satyr form is often colored red as the red dragon. So there's some tie in there. You see how things get transmogrified throughout the ages? Yes. Somebody takes a piece of imagery and an idea And a thousand years later, it's playing cards with you at your family home. But the idea, though, that this stranger has something that is animalistic about it. It's not like he did something magical, like bewitched, and people were freaking out, like, oh my gosh, it's a witch or a warlock or something. They just had something immediately identifiable as demonic. And in the 18th century, when this story happened, that's all it took. Cloven hoof, devil, boom, gone. Right. It's a really convenient and good story element, I think, if you're going to have a legend like that. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like it, Right. She didn't look under the table and see that uh, there was something else about him that was freaky. You know, it's just that's all it took. And why he was missing his shoe, who knows? But that also ties in with another idea about these demonic beings throughout folklore. They can't hide themselves completely. Remember, we talked about that with doppelgangers. They can get it close, but there's something that's going to be off about them. They can't completely duplicate. Yeah, yeah. and you know when it connects back to, of course, I always think about the Wizard of Oz and the comparison of looking behind the curtain 
But right. then again, we go back to the Men in Black and the Mothman story and the, mm-hmm. the guy that shows up and has a wire going down into his sock or <laughs> yeah. things don't, his skin doesn't fit right. Yeah there's, yeah, there's always a clue if you pay attention and that's what happened here, but there's always a giveaway. Otherwise, you just wouldn't know. I think sometimes when people see weird stuff, like our Devil of the Diner story, we've had a few stories like that come in where people have also claimed to have seen Somebody who is pretty much human, there's nothing wrong about them, but there's something really awful and sinister with them. And it was confirmed by others, unconnected, who were also there later. Yeah. What's going on there? Is that just a weird vibe? Is that the fight or flight experience? Are they giving off some kind of weird pheromone? Getting back to the pagan god, Pan, some people believe that it's the church's attempt to equate Pan specifically with Satan to demean and discourage people's pagan beliefs. So they would promote their version of Christianity, which ironically was heavily laced with paganism (laughs) as it was morphed. Remember we talked earlier about why the people of England, the Anglican clergy, didn't like the Irish version of them or thought that they were getting on board because they still incorporated a lot of pagan elements into their version of Irish Christianity. And they thought like, well, go ahead and invade them. We'll get them cleaned up. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And, Yeah. And more on board with the Roman version here. And that was another reason they thought possibly why it was okayed, you know, at least the church okayed the invasion of Ireland. Well, sort of unrelated to that, but kind of related. It also reminds me of when we talked about, I can't remember, maybe it was the Castle Hoska series or something where we talked about how they were allowing certain elements of the paganism to remain Mm -hmm. to make people feel okay about adopting this new, more refined religion. We're going to keep some elements in there. It connects actually to Krampus, I believe, when we were talking about Krampus. Yes, exactly. This is, we're going to let you guys keep this. Come on over, but you can keep some of this stuff. There's no harm, really. Yeah, it's a little like, I guess, people who have to go to rehab. And if they smoke, now they're really smoking a lot because they've been asked to give up a main thing that they love to do which is not good for them, but they got to hang on to something. Yeah. When you're converting to Christianity, it's a lot harder to get people on board when they're like, well, yeah, but we used to have feasts and fun and, you know, and we were more tied with the elements and and nature and the, uh, what's happening with the seasons. It's like, okay, you can do some of that, but get rid of these other parts, which are really distasteful to us. And we'll do a blend here. And a lot of Christmas stuff is like that, as we've talked about before, the Druid stuff with the trees and the, the boughs of holly all those elements maybe have a little bit of paganism in them still, but you're mostly on board with Christianity. But speaking of the religious angle, this is something you and I noticed, and it's especially pointed out in that documentary. There are what seem to be symbolic protections built into the house. Yeah, what that reminded me of when we first started looking at the house, and you explained to me, you know what, look what I just read, and you showed me this section about how the staircase is a version of the crucifix. This... It's a cruciform shape, yeah. So yes. there's a, there's a long main entrance, and then it splits off to the left and to the right. So if you look down on it, it's kind of a cross shape. And that's fascinating. And of course, the first thing I thought about was in Ghostbusters, when they're talking about Sigourney Weaver's apartment, and they're like, the whole building's a giant antenna. This is like the opposite (laughs) of that. You know, they've come in, because this is all connects. All this stuff, this is not what was originally in the house. This is not what was in the house when the story took place. This is the result of a renovation that was done from 1872 to 1884. Yes. And during that renovation, that's when they added this symbology. So the question is, are they doing that out of reverence? Are they doing that as an element of protection in this house that has this crazy history and possibly an ongoing, let's just say, issue? 
Right. Well, <laughs> here's the thing about the house. If it is in some form of original footprint from what it was when it was Redmond Hall, then it's hard to say if those were intentional or not, or might be just ancient things. Like, for one instance, the house faces the east to honor the resurrection of Christ. The front facade uses the significance of the number nine from the Kabbalah, and that being three rows of nine windows to symbolize the eternal God, or as a reversal of the 666 symbol for evil or the beast. Now, everybody, you're going to write in, it's like, well, that doesn't really mean yeah, that. Yeah, and that with the windows, that actually predates the renovation. That was part of the original facade of the second structure that was built. Well, not second necessarily, because we don't know what was there before Redmond Hall. Right. But the one after Redmond Hall, those windows were part of that. But the staircase was part of the newer renovation. So it's a combination of a lot of things going on here, yeah. but all symbolic protections, in this case, from varying religions. We were talking about yeah. the Kabbalah, or we're talking about Christianity with the crucifix, or the Kabbalah with the windows and the three rows of nine windows. It's interesting. You make a good point. I think it's a good observation because you can see it as... <sighs> In one sense, we talked about this before, you bought a curtain rod, and at the end of those, there are these plastic acorns yes. design. And I, I remember that from being a kid. Like, why is there, I think there are acorns. Why are those at the end of the curtain rods? And I never got it until I was older. That's a very ancient way of protecting the windows from evil entering the house. Kind of like the same thing with garlic and, and vampires. So every house did that. It's not that it's like, oh my gosh, this place is a portal to hell. It's just that it's just good luck. It's like the horseshoe above your front door. You have it with the ends pointing up so the luck doesn't run out. That's another thing. Remember that? Yeah. Well, it, yeah. it depends on the country. I suppose so. Yes. And, and, and right. I talked about this because I have a horseshoe over my front door. Yes, you do. And I have the ends pointing up. But there's a guy who delivers stuff to our house sometimes. Yeah. He's from uh, Belarus. And he told me that the end <laughs> should be pointing down so that the luck pours down as you enter. Right. So it depends on if you want your luck to pour down on you as you enter your house or be held. Or you want to be the... more like me and hoard it. <laughs> yeah. You, you save it for just, any day. Yeah. Dump it out when you need it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I guess that's an interesting idea how you look at it. The luck is in the horseshoe itself. Or the luck is captured by the horseshoe and dispenses it. Yes. Like a soap dispenser. Right. <laughs> as you enter. So that's regional. It's cultural. Depends on where you are and how you view stuff. And so when you look at the house, Loftus, after the renovation, I guess a lot of the floor tiles also had cross forms in it. Oh, by the way, the, yeah, a crucifix, I think, technically has to have a little representation of Jesus attached to it. Oh, right, to be called a crucifix. Yes, yeah, so right. it's a representation so th of Christ on the cross. So, right, I used that term incorrectly with regard to the staircase, which obviously does not have a giant representation of Christ <laughs> nailed to it. No, but I saw pictures of it. It's really intricate and ornate. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, yeah it, it, that's why it took so many years to carve it and then, and then assemble it. And it may have some. So our point here in summation is that, yes, many houses have that just as a natural form especially if the owner is Christian. But in this case, was there a lot more because of the history of the house? Maybe so. It, to me, seems that it leans that way. Because obviously, every generation after that knew of this story. It was that popular. It wasn't like it was just found in an old book by somebody doing research on the family genealogy. They lived with that story. And Anne was one of their ancestors. It would be somebody's great aunt. And she was a known person who died tragically, lived a kind of miserable life, at least the last part of it, and was a known thing. And so you got to wonder if all the people who came after that family, that generation in the Loftus and Tottenham families, 
if they didn't try to put a little zhuzh into the house to ward off any of this kind of residual haunting. Because whether you believe the devil story or not, it continued to have these ghost stories follow it pretty frequently. So what really happened there? When you look back on it, a major exorcism really seemed to have happened. We have Canon Lane's letter, the one imploring him to go check it out, mm-hmm. which was a blessing to go do a blessing, <laughs> that it was desperate and these folks needed help. Even though they're Protestants, we should probably help them. And it seemed to be known that Father Brodus had to use every known trick in the book to perform the exorcism, and it took a long time, you know, the classic three days, but it was multiple days that he was there, staying there, doing his work, and it wasn't completely successful. It was so powerful, whatever was there. And at the very least, he was able to contain this to the tapestry room. But as we've heard stories from people who were there, it seems to be all around the house still. But wouldn't it be great to hear from somebody who's actually been there and maybe who has even written a book about it? Yes, it would. And that's why we reached out to author Chris Rush, who wrote The Legend of Loftus Hall. So we have an interview with him that was a lot of fun. We're going to go to that now, and we will be back after the interview with our conclusions for this series. We are here with the author Chris Rush, who wrote the book The Legend of Loftus Hall, Evil Has Many Disguises. It was a very cool book, <laughs> and it was sent to us by a listener who encouraged us to cover the topic, which uh, we are obviously doing now. And we reached out to Chris, and we said, hey, would you like to do an interview? Also, we need to do it tomorrow. And he said yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> First of all, thanks very much for having me on the show. I'm a horror writer and a paranormal investigator. Um, I've wrote four books and I've wrote also a short story. Currently working on my fifth. <laughs> Get that plug in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose um, I had the privilege of being asked to write the story on the Legend of Loftus Hall. So I just want to say to all the listeners, I'm absolutely privileged to be a part of the podcast. And thanks so much again, guys, for having me aboard. Um, it's amazing, I have to say, to be contacted from Los Angeles. I kind of had to read the email twice just to, <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to make sure I'd got it right, you know? <laughs> well, it's a thrill to, uh, I, and I don't know where I got in my head somewhere reading about you that I thought you lived in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, sure, we won't follow over that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my first question for you. You're technically a horror author. Correct. I am indeed. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd be quite honest with you, Scott. I'm I'm a self-proclaimed horror freak. Ever since a young age, anything to do with horror, I'm literally in the middle of it. And um, I just decided to bite the bullet about two, about three years ago. It is now three to four years ago, and I wrote my first book. And to be quite honest, I said to myself, no one is going to read this. Um, the first book I wrote, which is called Folklore, but I said no one's going to read this. But I threw it out there and I took the chance and I was actually surprised people were coming back to me with the feedback that I have. So it's absolutely amazing. And um, I want to keep going strong. As long as these fingers can type, I'm going to try to keep releasing books. <laughs> well, are you, I, and that's the other thing that's amazing. Are you self-publishing all of these? Yeah, I've self-published. I have been published. Um, a short story of mine was published in a horror anthology. But oh, very for cool. the most part, it's just been a phenomenal journey. But yeah, for the most part, I'm self-published. I'm kind of a control freak if that makes sense like everything has to be perfect yes <laughs> yes when it comes to covers when it comes to cover style and um, what goes into the book and ah, oh, it's kind of a double-edged sword i love it but it can be an absolute headache as well but listen thankfully i get the product out there <laughs> well you know we're kind of the same way we can relate to that because that's how we are about our show and i guess yeah. the, the first thing that i want to tell you is that i'm a fan of horror writing but not a huge one 
And when I read your book, I was completely enthralled. I just loved the way that that you told the story. And I want to tell our listeners, or maybe you can describe, your story is a fictionalized take based on the reality of the stuff at Loftus Hall. Can you tell them a little bit about how that works and how you crafted the story around the legend and what parts you had to embellish and what parts you came across in your research? Absolutely not. And listen, first of all, I'm I'm absolutely delighted to hear that you enjoyed the story. That's kind of my main purpose, like... um, I want the reader to experience a certain snippet of what I've kind of seen with my own eyes, if that makes sense at all. Sure. So a little bit of background about Loftus Hall. Loftus Hall is actually, it still stands to this day. I was actually in it over the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Did you go in the tapestry room? (laughs) Yeah, I certainly did, would you believe? Yeah. (laughs) I'm a little bit biased. I actually love the building. For want of a better word, it's a, it's a marvel. Um, it's literally out on the very edge of the Hook Peninsula in County Wexford. Um, it's a really old-styled, huge mansion, if that's the best way to describe it. Um, the legend of Loftus Hall, you have to go back to the 1700s. Um, it's when uh, the Tottenham family were actually living in the hall at the time. The story is that when the last Loftus was a lady of the Loftus family line, if I'm remembering that correctly, so when she married... The husband had to take on the Loftus name, so he became Charles Loftus Tottenham. I know it's a big mouthful, trust me, fellas, I had trouble with that myself. (laughs) (laughs) So they lived in the house for a while, and a long story short, I'm sure Irish listeners listening at the moment, or anyone around Ireland, nine times out of ten, people have heard of Loftus Hall, and the general, I'll say, legend associated with it, which is, on a stormy night... Obviously, back in the 1700s, there was no electricity, so it was all candlelight and all, et cetera, et cetera. Stormy night, a ship docked in Slade Harbour, which and was very unusual. Only one individual got off this ship. Um, obviously, whoever it was, or they call him the Dark Stranger, he seen the lights or the candlelight from Loftus Hall in the distance. He acquired himself a horse, came up the Long Avenue. It's an absolute, like, you'd have to be there to experience it. The length of this avenue, it's crazy to get up to the house. But anyway, he made his way up. Knocked on the door, they invited him in, because obviously back then they wanted to be seen as a very powerful family. They didn't want to turn anyone away from the door, and obviously it looked good. With other people being there that night, it looked good for them inviting them in, you know? Mm-hmm. So, long story short, a car game was played in the house. Um one of the younger daughters, again, sorry for, I'm kind of jumping back and forward here. It's okay. You don't have to tell every detail if you don't want to, to give you oh, a heads up. Cool. But it is good to hear it directly from you. Yeah. And one question that we would have following up your summary or any points you want to talk about is what are then some of the things that you found perhaps in your research that yeah. are different or are things that you don't normally hear with the original story? Yeah. Well, I'll be quite honest with you, like, that's the wonderful thing about legends and folklore and all that kind of stuff, fellas. It's been handed down from generation to generation. And if you go down to Loftus Hall or into the local area, you might hear one version of the story. And say, for example, if you're up in Wicklow, you might hear the same story, but with just a slight little different take on it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You could go over to the west of Ireland and again, you'd hear the legend of Loftus Hall. Like, I won't say a totally different story, but it's just a slight little tweak on the story. The general story says the same, but it's just subtle little changes. The general story obviously is the card game. When one of the cards fell on the ground, young Anne Tottenham went down to pick it up and when she looked across the table, the dark stranger, as we call him, had a cloven hoof for a foot 
obviously she was a bit taken back by that. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, <laughs> right. uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, a little bit, a bit of a shock there for her, but um, she obviously uh, was taken back, sat back in the chair. The individual burst into a ball of flames and he didn't exit through the doors that he came in through. He exited through the roof. So the legend says that the devil himself actually visited Loftus Hall to play a game of cards with the family that night, which is a very interesting story. Again, you have different variations with the book. Obviously, I want to give people... When I sat down, I'll be honest with you, fellas, I wanted to give Loftus Hall... I want to give it a bit of respect, or I want to... Can you know, do the legend justice, if that makes sense, you know? Obviously, I had to add in bits and pieces, and to be honest, I worked very closely with the owner of the building at the moment as well, so... I added in little bits and pieces about uh, how the mother died and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd heard different takes on the legend that the stranger stayed in the house one night, but there was another version of he stayed in the house a couple of weeks, and during that time, the lady of the house fell in love with the man. Yes. And he used to spend, you know what I mean? And used yes, to spend, we read that as well, yeah. Yeah, and they used to spend hours on end in the, in the tapestry room and right. stuff like that. So in order to create the book, I said to myself, what are readers going to get? out of the story more so. So rather than have him just visit for one night and just miraculously disappear, yes. let the story develop a little bit. You know, take on, pick different parts of the legend, but keep the true emphasis of the story there, if that makes sense to you. I just loved it because, I mean, we, we do a lot of, <laughs> yeah, we do a lot of reading. We're in a book or a couple books a week. And oh my god, brilliant. A lot of times having to read them kind of quickly and and yeah. and reading a lot of these books about legends and I'll be honest too, this is the first one we've been on the air for you know, it's not really the air, but we've been a podcast for about <laughs> for 4 years and yeah. 130 some episodes, although many of those are multi-parters. So I would say we've covered 50 or 60 topics in depth. That's brilliant. And That's brilliant. um this is the first time that we've pulled a fictional book into the fold on our research. Initially, Forrest, my co-host here, was like, are you going to read Loftus Hall? And I was like, well, that's, it's fictional. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to taint the research with things that are made yeah. up. But then yeah. I was like, no, I do need to read this because there's a lot of things about it. <laughs> One of them being that, you know, there's not a lot of written accounts. It's very hard yeah, to find I, the first verifiable written version of this story. Absolutely. Like, as I said, a lot of it would be word of mouth. Um, the building itself, like, is, I keep going back to the, like, I just, every time I drive in and just look at the building. Yeah. It kind of, it's kind of every time, you can actually, with the, I know he's got the paperback, so you see a picture of the actual building on the back of it. Uh-huh. It just kind of, it's like getting a slap yes, in the face. Yes, yes, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The unique thing about Falkland, so even Ireland is, like, countrywide Irish folklore is just so in-depth, but... Different counties have different variations. Like you've heard, obviously, the story of the fairies, the leprechauns, the banshee, all that kind of stuff. Sure. You could go from county to county, and it's just subtle, subtle little changes, but the main kind of focus stays the same. And that's the same with Loftus Hall. The main legend, as I said there earlier, was himself came in. He was a tall, dark stranger, dressed in all black. Very, like people say, he was a very charming fellow, very well-spoken, you know. But just something a little bit odd about him, you know. Something just stood out that wasn't quite right. Obviously, the biggest kind of 
impact on the building at the time was obviously when he exited through the roof. Now, again, I don't want to jump too far ahead. There was like various paranormal things and supernatural stuff happened afterwards and an exorcism actually had to be carried out in the house and apparently that lasted three days. And as I like to call it, it's kind of a, a gold mine of history and folklore all in the one place. <laughs> well, it really is. And, you know, getting back yeah. to what I wanted to say about your book is that as I read it, I really got sucked into the story. I feel like I was binging <laughs> something on that. Netflix. I because I was, <laughs> I really loved the way that you portrayed the characters. I'll, I'll just get this out of the way because I'm. I don't want to gush about it through the whole interview here. But what I what I'm saying <laughs> is like, the way that you portrayed the relationship between the dark stranger and Charles and also and yeah. all those dynamics and how masterful the dark stranger was at manipulating yeah. Charles, who was a huge jerk. And the, the way this devil character gave it back to him, yeah. I was like, this is really well written. You obviously know something about good and evil. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> but it it was just very enthralling. I, you just, you're a very good storyteller. I really enjoyed the book. So since we're on it right now, you know, what benefits you the most? If people pick up your paperback or? As I said long, I said when I started out, Scott, um, yeah, obviously money's fantastic. Money's great. But I'll be <laughs> quite honest. I just want people to read the book. Like yeah. I don't mind, you know what I mean? I'm not in it for money. I'm not in it for fame or fortune. Obviously, it'd be very nice to have. As long as someone reads the book, but yeah, paperback, myself personally, if I'm reading the book, I prefer to have it in my hand. No, we're the same way. I actually, what I've gotten to with our show anyway is I like to have the hardcover edition Absolutely. or something, and then, yeah. but also the Kindle one so that I can do digital note taking, you know, so I'll get both. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But, um, where can people find your book? What's the best place to find it? The best place um, for the likes of the States or even actually even in Ireland and the UK and all, Amazon at the moment is the best. Now, okay. I know locally down in Loftus Hall, they obviously sell uh, copies, paperback versions of it as well. Um, I do like a couple of book signings down there during the year. And it's just like all the staff at Loftus Hall, the owner, and it's like they've been absolutely amazing um, support-wise. So I'm in a very good place at the moment. And even with yourselves, it just helps. Like, I'm delighted just to help get my name out there, you know what I mean? That's half the battle, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Just wondering what the design was on the front. Obviously, there's kind of oh, a, uh, an excerpt very, of the... very, very good. Very <laughs> good. Very, very, very good. Actually, what do you think it is, Forrest? If you don't mind me putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, I was wondering if it was some kind of Celtic symbolism or some kind Very of an good. ancient uh, design. It looks a little canine to me. Just turn it to its side with the spine of it down to the floor, just the ground, if that makes sense. Ah, uh, very nice. <laughs> did Wait, not now even, let me see. Let I me did see. not even realize that. It, it, you, Scott is absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's canine. It's <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's yeah. a it's a it's devil actually, hound. A lot of people yeah think it's actually a boar's head. Ah, boar's actually, head. Okay. Yeah, it's actually the family crest of the family. That's actually on the original door down there that the dark stranger supposedly walked through. If you walk out, like it's actually engraved over the door. Uh-huh. And again, to give the kind of book and the project respect and kind of to give it kind of its own uniqueness. I said Billy Cullen is a guy I know very well. He's the guy that worked with me to do this cover. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I want that on the cover. Oh, nice. It has to be on, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. 
And um, you're not too far off. The kind of image or that kind of in the center of the boar's head, would you believe, is meant to be the, the dark stranger himself. Ah, the, I see. Uh, I see. <laughs> I see. You weren't too far wrong, though. So, like, a lot of people, like, wouldn't obviously spot it straight away. But the amount of people that have said to me, oh, my God, when I turned the book sideways, I realized it's a, <laughs> like, a, like a wolf's head or yeah, a horse or a canine yeah. head. I'd actually love to physically bring us down and just show you the kind of whole landscape and the, the, just the history of salt. Like, there was actually a building, not the building that's there today, but there was actually a building on that site mm-hmm. from the 1100s all the way up till today. That was Redmond Hall, right? There was Redmond Hall, and yeah. then even before that, there's more. Like, the, it's just the amount uh-huh. of history down there yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. It's crazy. Like, even if you just glance across to the... Hook Lighthouse. It's actually the oldest working lighthouse in the world, if I'm remembering. Yes, right. Yeah, that's what we found too. It's absolutely, again, it's another site to behold. It's absolutely phenomenal. It was it used to be run by monks, if I remember correctly, and they used to have to carry the fuel on their right shoulder, I think it is, up the stairs to fuel the actual fire in the top of the lighthouse. So, again, it's just the whole landscape. But I'm actually interested in that model now. You have me wondering. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you have me wondering. Um, I'm going to have to do a little bit of research into that one now. <laughs> well, it was interesting because one thing that I enjoyed is when we researched the history, when it was Redmond Hall, their crest yeah. has the three sacks of wool on it. That yeah. that was a kind of a clever uh, defensive idea uh, <laughs> to to yeah. capture the musket balls of the English and then shoot yeah. them back at them. But such, such a good idea to end it up on their family crest. So. Yeah, oh, it's crazy. It it really is crazy. But have you ever heard of the the saying by hook or by crook? Yeah, yeah. We mentioned that a little bit. Is that true, or that's actually uh, Oliver Cromwell saying that? Yeah, supposedly that is true because you've got the Hook Peninsula, mm-hmm. and then straight across you've got the Crook. Yeah, and he said he'd take Ireland by hook or by crook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is very interesting. It's just again, it goes back to the whole. Um, like lore of the area, folklore, legends, and how history blends it. Like it's like a, it's like a little pot, yeah, with, uh, soup in there, and you can just reach in and take out. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, that brings me to my next question, Chris. A lot of times, what we found over the many shows that we've done and and the legends that we've covered is that there's yeah there's a seed of truth at the root of the legend. Yeah. When, when you researched the story. And you were digging down on it. Did you find any sort of, Um, or is it all just oral history at this point in conjecture? I know for a fact, like Anne Tottenham obviously was a real individual. She, the lady is buried in a a local village down there. Um, It's Feather on Sea, which is about maybe probably four to five miles away from Loftus Hall. I could be completely wrong. I'm crap at distance, but um, Uh it's definitely close by. (laughs) Uh Um, Father Thomas Brothers, I was actually, would you believe, at his grave. I visited his grave one day with a very good friend of mine, uh, Tina Barco. We went on a kind of a little kind of treasure hunt one day. We wanted to find his grave and and Tottenham's grave into one day and just get to visit them, if that makes sense. So... The people definitely did exist. As regards the legend, I've never physically been handed something into my hand. Like, here's a quick account of what happened, but it's like any kind of history or anything. You're going on what someone else has seen or heard. The way I look at it with any form of history, unless you were there and you experienced it yourself, yeah. you're always going to be going on word of mouth. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, sure, sure. Take, for example, like any war or something like that, like you're dependent on someone that was actually live there on the battlefield that day to tell you what happened. 
This right. is how the strategy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's absolutely not to discredit any historian or anything like that. It's just my kind of opinion on it. By all means, yes, there's countless stories about the hall on the internet, locally, in various different documents, but as to get like with a stamp on it saying, yeah, this is totally credible, this is it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, like, uh, the people were definitely there. Um, the priest associated with the place definitely existed. And, again, as the legend goes, you're going on the locals and what's apparently... It's, been, it's like, been handed down from generation to generation, you know? This is Bay Area rapper Skaz1 thanking you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Rick Whelan had talked about a letter in his documentary that was yeah. regarding the exorcism. Do you know if that letter exists, or is that just a rumor of a letter? I thought, no, again, I don't know if that actually exists. No, again, I've seen that documentary, um, Jesus, it's a while ago now. Again, it's back when I was writing the book. I kind of enthralled myself in everything to do sure. with Loftus Hall. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, myself, personally, I've never seen the letter, but that's not to say... It doesn't exist. Yeah. The exorcism itself was meant to have lasted three days. Father Brothers went through the whole house carrying out an exorcism. He was meant to have been successful in every single room, but except the tapestry room. Whatever was actually dormant or laid in there, he couldn't get it out. So whatever was left in the house, he trapped or, for want of a better word, locked into the tapestry room. And it's still there to this day, as legend says. Yeah. Yeah. See, I thought maybe you had made that part up in your book, but that's what the legend says, huh? Yeah, exactly. That is what the legend says. Um, now, again, I have to say the owner of the building is an absolute I don't know what word describes the man. He's like a encyclopedia of Loftus Hall, if that makes mm, sense. Sure, sure. <laughs> Would that be Aiden um, Quigley? That is indeed. That's Aiden. Yeah, he's an absolute gentleman. Um, like in fairness, he gave me open access to the hall. When I wrote the book, I wanted to go down there, um, take pictures, and stand in every room that I wanted to talk about, and just take in the atmosphere, if that makes sense, to give the reader kind of a inside look of what I was experiencing. But um, going back to the history thing or the history element of it, I gained a lot of knowledge off Aiden. Like I sat with the man, I think, Jesus, I think he nearly was asking me to leave at one stage. <laughs> 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 I know, I'm, only, I'm only joking. I'm only, but, um, <laughs> no, I sat with him for hours one day just chatting away and I said, tell us about the place, what's your take on the legend, who lived here. Um, it was just a total experience just to sit with the man and listen to him talk so passionately. He's like a caretaker of a historical building of Ireland, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And just to hear the passion coming out through him, I said to myself, oh, my God, I really hope I can do this story and this building justice. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I really think oh, you thank did. Thank you very much. I appreciate, <laughs> oh. I appreciate that. He doesn't live there, right? It's he's. Oh, off, no, no. Yeah, no. yeah. It's not livable no, at this point, I don't is know it? If he, I hope he doesn't mind me saying he did live there for when he purchased the first when I say live, he spent like a good few nights in it and stuff like that. But as regards now, no, it's not livable. It's a safe method of looking into the past. That's the way I kind of describe it. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, it's not livable, but obviously there is a cafe area and which is obviously safe and up to date and all that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. as regards to the house itself, no, it's, it wouldn't be livable. He's actually literally renovating the whole um, cafe area. Sure. When I was down there, when I was down there Saturday, he was chipping away. 
little pieces so people could get to see the original wall and all like so wow. he's constantly working on the building him and his brother builders from years ago he's done oh. conservation courses yeah yeah so, oh you know, that's great these guys kind of know what they're doing you know what i mean yeah there is plans i'm sure he has a lot more plans to come up but uh i doubt he'll even tell me because it'll be close to the chest you know what i mean yeah sure sure <laughs> In our research, there was some implication, and it seemed like specifically that Aiden might have thought this as well, that there's different stories about Redmond Hall and it being completely torn down versus maybe some of its structure being integrated into what became Loftus Hall. Do you you know what the opinions are there? There's no doubt about it. There was definitely heavy renovations done on the building itself because the Queen was meant to come over at the time. Sure. They want, obviously, the building to look speak and span the best it could possibly be. And they spent an absolute... Now, Aiden will be able to tell you the exact figures. It's meant to be absolutely phenomenal in nowadays uh, currency. Yeah. But um, they spent an absolute fortune renovating the house. And lo and behold, she never actually came over to see it. So mm. it was kind of money, I won't say wasted, because the building is an absolute marvel. But it was money kind of spent... That I'm sure at the time they probably felt, oh, geez, why do we spend this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, the foundations of the site and all that kind of stuff is original. But again, I don't know personally myself how much renovations took place, but there was some done. There's no obviously discarding that, but the building as a whole, it's on the same foundations. I'm sure it's the same kind of integral walls and all that kind of stuff i'm sure probably the outside is a little bit changed and stuff like that yeah we can't really be sure but there's a possibility that some of the walls may be the same oh absolutely now okay. again you'd have to talk to obviously probably aiden and right. so be able to give you a better idea but um i know for a fact with the research i did do yeah and just from speaking to himself there was definitely renovations done on the house and uh it's local knowledge that there was renovations done but um i keep joking with aiden that someday i'm gonna own that building because i love it so <laughs> careful what you wish for there oh you never know yeah exactly you never know yeah having done all the research and having written the book and everything where do you come down on the original devil's tale what do you think because we also came across another version of the story that was very similar that took place in dublin in the Hellfire Club, yes, yeah. at the Hellfire Club, and there's another one. There's another one in Castletown House. Oh, they really? Call it the Triangle is called. Yeah, it's the Hellfire Club, Loftus Hall, and Castletown House. Yeah. Uh, okay. My take on it personally is, um, yeah, no, you work with uh, Paranormal Researchers Ireland. I myself personally, I want something to physically reach out and grab me to tell me it's there. Other than that, you're always going to be dependent on other people's kind of word of mouth. Sure. The interesting thing about Loftus Hall, uh, Hellfire Club and Castletown House is that, if I think I'm remembering correctly, I think they have the same architect connected with the three of them. Oh, really? Yeah, that kind of gives people, oh my God, it's the same, you know, some kind of association there. Didn't Mm. Loftus also own the Hellfire Club or live in the, or some? No, the Loftus weren't. The Hellfire Club is definitely associated with the Loftus Hall, or with the Loftuses, if I remember, because I remember I was talking to um, Aiden about it, and I was kind of going, oh, wow, I didn't actually realize to myself that there is a connection there somewhere between the Hellfire Club and Loftus Hall, yeah. yeah. So um, there is definitely something there, kind of some kind of connection. As regards Castletown House, if you literally Google Castletown House, it's like a bigger expansion of the front piece of Loftus Hall. It's like looking at Loftus Hall only on a kind of larger scale, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. 
I can hear you. You're obviously Googling. Yeah, you can hear me typing. <laughs> I'm typing into my computer. I'm oh, my God. Yeah, yeah look at this. Wow. To see it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah. You can nearly tell straight away, oh, my God, that's really look, look, looking at a bigger version of Loftus Hall, you know? And instead of nine windows across, it's got 13. It has 13, yeah. 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 I was up at it, I think, two, was it a year ago? And is it still, is it three windows high, if yep, that makes it sense? Yeah, it is. Yeah, three, yeah. yeah. So it's three lines of 13, and Loftus is, is three lines of nine, yeah. Yeah. And you think that's the same architect? It looks the same. Yeah, yeah. I think, if I remember correctly now, it is the same architect. That it's the design, the same architect that was associated with Castletown House, the Hellfire Club, um, the actual building of the Hellfire Club, not the congregation of developing the actual group, the Hellfire yeah. Club. <laughs> what, what is, wait, what is the Hellfire Club? They're, for want of a better word, um, the Hellfire Club were a satanic cult, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and um, the connections between um, Britain and Ireland and the most famous Hellfire Club is the one in Dublin. Like anyone that mentions the Hellfire Club will always, like even if you Google the Hellfire Club, it probably will pop up. Um, the one on top of Montpelier Hill up in Dublin, yeah. 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 What they used to do is they'd toast the devil, like they'd have parties, they'd leave an empty chair at the head of the table for the devil to come in and join them again there's a lot of crude acts done up there and you know it's, it's just a, I've been up there a few times myself and um, would you believe that's actually what, going back to my original uh, kind of introduction my short story Lambs to the Slaughter, it was called, was actually based on the Hellfire Club. (laughs) Was it serious or was this just an entertainment kind of lark or were these people serious about it? Oh, they were apparently so serious, yeah. They were apparently serious, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure when... It could have been the 1700s, I think, when it was active up there. Uh I think it was built late 1700s, I think. And then obviously throughout the 1800s, if I remember correctly, was the whole kind of uh, activity up there, yeah, for want of a better word, where they're practicing their kind of worship and all that kind of stuff, yeah. What is it now? It's literally an abandoned structure on top of a hill. Wow. It's a stone structure. Um, Have you seen it, fellas? Have you ever actually seen it? No, no. Literally just Google it there and tell me what you think. Okay, let's see here. (laughs) Do paranormal investigation teams do any lockdown investigations of the site? Yeah, we myself personally with uh, Paranormal Research Ireland, we went up there. Oh, doing no, this is twice. this give me a bad feeling. I'm not... <laughs> Sorry, guys, Good it's the cold. Come at me again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know it doesn't look the same as Castledown House or Loftus Hall, but you can kind of see the windows. Mm-hmm. They're big. They're open. They're wide. You know. I'm not saying it's the exact same kind of looking at it, but it kind of has the same style of windows, or yeah. there's just something about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're up on top of that hill, the view from up there is absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You can actually see you can actually see the whole of Dublin City. Oh, it's wow. absolutely crazy. So it is, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And going back to your original question about paranormal investigations, yeah. I've been up there obviously with the team I've been on, but I'm sure other teams go up there as well. But the thing is, is security and obviously health and safety. Yeah. If you're out in the open there, you have to have your wits about you that sure. anyone could literally walk in here. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. security and your own safety and your team safety obviously is paramount when you go to somewhere like that. Sure. Um, it's obviously totally different in like uh, Loftus Hall or yeah. another close little gem of mine is uh, Wicklow Jail. 
Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of places are obviously secure. They're managed. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Do you get a bad feeling walking around? I mean, it looks so ancient and, uh, yeah. I mean, beyond Gothic. I'm trying to give you a perfect example of my kind of view. I wouldn't say I get a bad feeling. I just love taking in an atmosphere. Like, say, for example, if I went to Pavelia, it's the little island off Italy there where there's, there's uh, hundred thousands of bodies buried on it. Like, I wouldn't go to a place like that and disrespected if that makes sense but i'd go just to experience the atmosphere i just stand there and just take it in for what what it is but again in my opinion obviously i can't speak for every single person in the world i wouldn't go there and disrespect it like to go to the hellfire club i wouldn't say i feel uneasy or anything i just love taken in the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bet. Yeah. You had said that you had gone to visit Anne Tottenham's where she was buried? Yeah. Was she offside at a cemetery or is she in that crypt right next to the house? Very good. Now, that's brilliant research on your part. Oh, well, <laughs> you, thank, well, thank you very much. Actually, you thank know, you. I just, he, uh, he cannot take credit for that. Actually, that's a note I took from uh, Rick Whelan. You're very correct. It's actually, you can't, when you walk into the cemetery, yeah. it's not a kind of a everyday grave, if that's yeah. the appropriate word to say. Uh-huh. Like, obviously, no grave is everyday. You have to actually go into the church. It was unfortunately locked the day we were there, but you have to, obviously have to go into the church and turn to the right. It's kind of like in, in a family tomb right. inside in the church. You can't actually see it from the outside, yeah. Yeah. We actually got that bit of information from Rick Whelan's documentary, yeah. The Legend of Loftus Hall, where he says yeah. in the 1940s, apparently, they were doing some repairs after the family crypt or the vault had been damaged by yeah. vandals while they were doing these repairs, trying to seal up the door permanently that workmen discovered an odd-looking coffin that had a sloped lid on it. And, well, that's true, because what the intimation is that that was Anne Tottenham's coffin, and it was out of place. Is any of that true? Well, I won't use the word disfigured, because it's not really a disfigurement. Yeah, the tomb, would you believe, I was at it, and um, it literally looks like a... What's the best way to describe it? It looks like a tiny little room at ground level mm-hmm. beside the church. And as you said, there is a, if I remember correctly, because it's gone back about a year, year and a half now, there is kind of a bricked up door. Now. In other words, you cannot see this from the outside. You'd have right. to get into the church. And just continuing your story about the coffin, the legend or the story goes that is that after the whole incident with the dark stranger, she was actually locked into the tapestry room yeah, because right. she went insane. Right. Apparently, she took on the fetal position sitting, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So she lifted her knees up to as far as obviously she could to her chin and wrapped her arms around and just rocked back and forward. And apparently, her joints became fused in that position and she had to be buried that way when she died in the tapestry room. Yeah. Wow. Do you believe any of that? Well, I can only go on what people have said and heard. Right. Um, right. I haven't been given any reason not to believe it, which is the best way to describe it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's definitely an interesting take when, as you said yourselves, when the guys were renovating and they actually seen the coffin with the slope lid and all on it, which is uh, kind of adds to the authenticity of it actually happening, you know? Yeah, I was about to say that. It does add some credence to at least the yeah. part of the story where, you know, she obviously had some kind of mental breakdown yeah, and just yeah. kept her feet like that. And then I think one story says that she lived about maybe 10 years or so after the incident. Yeah, in that room. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, that obviously is in your book, but I mean, do, is yeah. was she banished to that room or was she just in the room all the time? Again, this is what I love about legends and stories because mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's actually creating exactly what I love. It's creating a, a conversation and a kind of a debate about it, which is absolutely brilliant in my opinion. Yeah. Again, there's another variations of that piece of the story. Some parts of the legend say she actually bore a child for yeah. um, the Dark Stranger. Now, oh, I, didn't yes. want, I didn't put it into the book because... In my opinion, you're kind of veering down another road, and you can nearly write a completely separate book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I mean. So I just said to myself, right, which part? I kind of had to make a decision and say, right, one part. One part of the legend said she did. One part of the legend said she didn't. No, she just went insane from the shock of what she's seen. Right. So I kind of just picked one, if that makes sense, and kind of went with it, you know. But as regards being locked into the room, there's two variations. One said is that uh, the family felt an immense shame that she had a child out of wedlock mm-hmm. and just said, no, we can't let this get out. You know, we can't uh, be seen to be kind of a bad, you know, reputation or something right, like that. Right. So they, they kind of just put her in there. The other variation is that she just literally went completely crazy um, from what she's seen and she was heartbroken at the same time. And uh, she just literally couldn't function in the normal world and so they just locked her in there, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, you have to kind of say to yourself, Jeez, this woman actually existed, and what did happen? Like, there's different variations, sure. And you kind of only have to go on what people say, what you read, and you can only read so much without going down, you know, the rabbit hole and all that. So, I just find it fascinating that to this day, even if I can guarantee, if I went out into the street now, I'd probably meet 10 people and five out of those 10 people will have heard of Loftus Hall Mm -hmm. and probably five out of 10 will know the story about the whole card game, the exiting through the roof and the tapestry room. They're kind of the heavy hitters, you know, the three. (laughs) Yeah, right. The Dark Stranger, the card game. and (laughs) (laughs) Those would be the bullet points. That leads to my next question, though. Another part of the, the story of the tapestry room itself is that during the renovation in the 1870s, they found... A skeleton. That skeleton, bring, yeah, was, yeah. Is that true? And do you know if it was adult or a child skeleton? That's meant to be a child skeleton. Oh. I've never seen physical evidence. And to be honest, I never really researched, I may as well be honest, the baby part of it because I had right. made a decision, right, I'm not putting that into the story. Right. Now, yeah. I do recall hearing various accounts of, yes, when they were renovated, they found uh, the skeleton in the wall and stuff like that, but I didn't research a whole lot into it, if that makes sense, because yeah. I knew it wasn't going down that route. But yeah, that is another... In the tapestry room itself, if you walk in on the right-hand side, there's a kind of a fireplace. Yeah. And uh, it was meant to be found in that wall there, yeah, when they were renovating the building. Wow. Is that part of the uh, the authentic legend or the official story of, uh, like, what Aiden would tell? As I, as I like to say, um, it's one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. That's, again, I know it sounds... Like it's hard, it is the thing about legend and folklore. I don't think, in my opinion, you'll ever be able to nail it down saying, right. right, this is definitely what happened. This is the full on legend of Loftus Hall. This is the full on legend of the Banshee because it's so unique and it's so interweaving and changed throughout word of mouth. It's just it's hard to nail down, you know? Yeah. But it's definitely a kind of a snippet or a function of the story that she bore a child and it was found in the walls down there, yeah. Mm. Are there any Tottenham? descendants around these days um as far as i know 
I don't live in Lockley. I do not know. Yeah. Now, I know there is, there's some event this year, I think, taking place down there where there's kind of a family gathering. But oh, yeah. Know. Right, right, right. Yeah. I don't know where they're, to be quite honest with you, fellas, I don't know if they're coming from abroad or if they're coming from different parts of Ireland. <laughs> right. Um, as far as I'm aware, I don't, in the local vicinity, I don't know if there's actual direct descendants. Now, it could be completely wrong. You could get a comment saying, oh, my God, I'm a descendant, and I totally apologize for that. <laughs> but as yeah. Far, but as, as far as I'm where is the best answer I can give? I don't think there is directly in the area. I don't think so, no. Forrest is wondering, are there any Redmond? Do you ever hear, see the Redmond yeah, family? Yeah, there's a Raymond family. Actually, that little like, story snippet comes off the Wikipedia entry for Loftus Hall. It was part of the modern day occurrences that some descendants or those claiming to be descendants of the Redmond family had come from Dublin to visit the hall, but they had ah! a spirit interaction with a lot of past family members. And I think as we told in our timeline section of part one of the series, at least according to the entry, that they had gotten the impression that they should not enter the hall until they had thrown a proper feast to honor their past relatives. And so... Ah, excellent. (laughs) But they they had a a very significant, uh, you could say, spirit encounter while they visited, which is, I just find that interesting. That's definitely interesting. And in my opinion, pretty cool. Yeah, Um, (laughs) right. Again, uh, even in the town I'm from here, you hear the surname Redmond's now mm. could I say that they're related to the Redmond's I have absolutely no idea but there definitely is Redmond's around the yeah country. Sure, certainly yeah right <laughs> Tottenham's I'm not quite sure and Loftus's again like you've got the tree you've got the Redmond's the Tottenham's and the Loftus's yeah when I researched I just kind of kept literally to the characters I want geez I shouldn't even call them characters because they were real people I just literally kept to the people I was going to put into the book you know what I mean well it's like you know we have a uh, uh, some friends who are screenwriters and how they adapt you have to pick a a storyline which is going to be you know different from the history but you want to honor some elements of the original story that's exactly and when I um, first started tightening it up here I said to myself yes I want to keep certain authentic so to speak elements of the legend but obviously i'm going to have to expand on certain parts to help create a product for people to be able to pick up and read sure and get a kind of some indication of the legend along with some form of you know joining the dots if that makes sense you know what i mean oh absolutely um yeah. I'll never claim to be a, an absolute full loftus hall historian or anything like that <laughs> right right but um I do know certain elements of the story, the building, the history, all that kind of stuff. But I'd say if I went down there with a shovel, I'd probably dig up, you know, reams and reams and reams of mindset and just absolute... I'd be just kind of overwashed with history, i say, if I went down, you know, the rabbit hole. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, that brings us to our next question then. What do you personally believe about, or do you believe anything about the original card game tale? And is that what has kind of ended up in your book, a storyline that you maybe personally believe, if anything about it? I do believe um, something happened. Um, I have to say I'm a polite uh, skeptic. Yeah. In every variation of this world, um, as I said, when I do my work with Paranormal Researchers Ireland, I want, as I said to you earlier on, I want something to convince me anywhere in the world, be it Ireland, Britain, America. I want to walk in somewhere. I'd, obviously, I don't want to be aggressively assaulted or anything. Sure. I want something just to reach out and say, right, I'm here. And I'd respectfully say, right, I understand you are. And I'd politely leave. But as regards <laughs> the Loftus Hall story, in my opinion, 
every legend has some form of beginning. Yeah. So something, in my opinion, has to have happened to create such a, a story. Now, be it the story has been multiplied and been snowballed down a hill over the years, that is quite possible. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying I haven't. But in my opinion, something needed to happen to create the legend. Yeah. It's like the legend of the Banshee, like that has been traced back over the years that women used to actually be hired by high-paid or high-class Irish families to come to a funeral and cry, just literally cry at the grave. Uh. And that's where the whole cry of the banshee came from, that, you know, the loom and death and all that kind of stuff. So as regards, I do feel that there has to be some kind of beginning point for a, a legend or a story to begin, you know? Yeah, we feel that way exactly. Uh, everything that we've yeah. researched and come across there are elements to it that you can't yeah. totally dismiss. And in this yeah. case, there definitely seems to be, at least on record, yeah. a, an exorcism, yeah. uh, you know, for a, yeah. you know, for a Protestant yeah. family of note of, uh, of good peerage of the era Absolutely. to, to, to call a upon a priest. Yeah. 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 There yeah. definitely had to have been some paranormal trouble going on. I know it sounds so dramatic the way they exited through the roof and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Unless you were sitting there that night, at that table, among them playing those cards, no one can say it did or it didn't happen. You know right. what I mean? It's like saying we're the only life in the universe. How do you know that? Yeah, that's our opinion too. You know what I mean? I know there's thousands of experts out there. I'm not one of them because I'll never claim to be one of them. Right. Saying there is aliens, there's no aliens, there is aliens. Yeah, no one will ever know until they physically come down in that spaceship and say, how are you doing, lads? We're here. There'll be, be countless of eyewitness reports and all this until it goes literally worldwide and it stays there for 24 days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just hovering yeah. there. That's when I'll say to myself, oh, Jesus, there must be something. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before it's concrete, sure. Going back to the Loftus Hall thing, unless you experienced it there yourself, unless you're one of the servants, unless... You'll never be able to tell, but I just think the whole fascination of it, it's got such a, like Loftus Hall is known, every corner of Ireland has heard of Loftus Hall. Mm -hmm. And for a story like that to reach such a large population, something has to have occurred to say, oh Jesus, this is a little bit out of the ordinary here. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know I've seen a couple of shows, even in the States, um, where Loftus Hall has been mentioned, like if you Google so many times across like uh, haunted places in the world or random Googles, like every now and again Loftus Hall will pop its little head up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think that's fascinating for such a small little country of five, six million people, whatever it is. And um, for a story like that and a building down there just on the edge of a little tiny island to be recognized worldwide. In that sense, I just find it phenomenal. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's definitely an interesting legend, an interesting house, and an interesting place. <laughs> oh, ab absolutely. Well, speaking of possible trace evidence of something occurring, or at least some kind of damage, it's said that when you go to visit the hall, you can see maybe where there's a spot in the ceiling where there's been the some damage. Room, yeah. What do you see there? You can actually go in to do a tour. Now, I know it's not open yet. It'll be open now in the next couple of months. But mm -hmm. to do to bring you through the building and to bring you into the card room where supposedly the dark stranger was and went up through the roof. And uh, there's a mark there in the ceiling. So, yeah, you can go in there and experience that if you want to. Yeah. Again, some people might say, oh, you know what I mean? Oh, that's not. But again, you have to go on. Were you there that night? Were you not there that night? Is that, the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, 
you take from it what you will. You know what I mean? That's the way I kind of look at it. Right. I just find that interesting when someone, for talks sake, goes to the cinema or to the theatre and they pay money to go in and watch a horror movie and they know it's a horror movie yeah. and they come back out totally disgusted, totally horrified <laughs> and totally, oh my God, I'm never going well, I'd kind of say to that person, but what did you expect? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Deep, deep down, you so, kind of enjoyed it, perhaps, yeah. Absolutely. So if you go to the Amityville house and you go to your, you walk in there and you go, oh, oh my God, uh, this, that, and the other, and you see this and you experience it, and you've heard this story and that story, and you walk back out, you kind of say to yourself, oh, that did happen or that didn't happen. That's kind of your opinion, but you kind of walk away going, yeah, but what did you expect? You kind of know the story before you get there you kind of learn a little bit more about it as you go. <laughs> you have said that you've done some investigations there. Do you have any interesting experiences uh, that you personally witnessed? I love, and I'm going to tell you one that actually happened. Now, people can argue the fact, and I kind of came up with a possibility of why it could have happened, but I'll tell you the story anyway. Um, we done a private lockdown there at back probably two, three years ago on Friday the 13th. I know, guys, perfect day if we had to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. be quite honest, there wasn't a whole lot happening. We're, like, when, with PRI, you know, we're, we have to be walkie-talkie, the earpiece, all that kind of stuff for health and safety, yes. just communicating and making sure everything's gone as it should be, as in there's no people rambling around in the darkness on their own or anything like that, yeah. because that's, first of all, unsafe. Yeah. So, listen, there was not a whole lot where we just started chatting. This is my own account. I had an earpiece in which was directly connected to the walkie-talkie so anything that would have came through i would have heard not the group that was with me if that makes sense yes so we're just chatting away and next minute literally out of nowhere a voice says attention just literally nothing like for no reason no nothing it comes through the walkie-talkie attention like that and it goes that's a bit weird because it didn't come through the earpiece but it's come out through the speaker and the walkie talkie oh that's weird you know and the group heard it and I goes yeah that's it and it goes so I radioed and I think I radioed upstairs or it could have been into the tapestry room where Billy was it was either upstairs or into the tapestry room I can't remember correctly but I'm a radioed and I goes did anyone else hear anything or experience or anything and it says uh, yeah we're after hearing the exact same thing coming through our walkie talkie and at the same time, out at reception, where when we're in the house, we leave a walkie-talkie with one of the staff members at reception, just in case, obviously, someone needs to be taken out of the house or anything like that. Right. And they actually heard the same exact thing coming through on their walkie-talkie as well. So more or less, all the walkie-talkies at the same time, on that split second, when nothing was happening in the house, literally the word attention, as if to kind of stand to attention or something like that. <laughs> came through on the walkie-talkie, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Now, people could argue, like, was there a ship, like, uh, going by the docks, or, you know what I mean? And yeah. randomly, it interrupted our walkie-talkies. Absolutely possible. But, uh, it's, yeah. you know, kind of 50-50, could it happen or not? Yeah. And, like, why, like, they could be shouting attention to the staff, which is very formal on a ship, I know, but whenever. You know, it's just an interesting thing as regards other people's experiences, like, people have experienced shadow figures, static as in white noise figures we've actually caught our most interesting evidence down there on evp like billy is the sound engineer of the crew he loves anything to do with sound and all that kind of stuff i'm not going to even try to explain it to you because i end up tripping myself up he's the main man when it comes to that <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, he left a digital recorder down there and we've actually it was locked off and there was no one around or no one near the recorder and loftus hall at one stage was a convent 
And uh, it was ran, I think, if I remember correctly, 1900s up to 1970s or something like that. But anyway, we actually caught music, like an organ or something like that, playing mm. in the back room one night when there was no one there. Wow. And we just find that very interesting. Tina was down there with the founder of Paranormal Researchers Ireland, Tina and Wayne, literally on their own, no one else around. It was just them two one night. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a very disturbing experience on the middle floor. They were just, I think it was the middle floor or the top floor. I think it was the middle, but anyway, they were leaning back, just chatting like we are right now, and uh, the shutters behind them, there was like a loud bang, and uh, on the EVP, when Billy listened back, there was kind of uh, aggressive language, if I remember correctly, coming Mm. through to kind of get them to be startled or to move, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Even public nowadays, when they go down, they experience various different things. Some people see stuff, smells, they get touched. People just feel in certain areas of the house totally uncomfortable and they just have to get out. They just can't, as in when I say get out, they have to get out of the room and get themselves like a cup of tea or, you know what I mean, just kind of get themselves a bit of a a recharge, so to speak. Yeah, Scott's uh, experienced that. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely i just think it's a phenomenal building as regards atmosphere i absolutely love it and yeah someone that goes to loftus hall will definitely walk away i won't say with a paranormal experience yeah I'm, I'm not guaranteeing they will or they won't but they'll definitely walk away with an experience from seeing the architecture the atmosphere and just where and how and the history of the whole you know it's just i find it phenomenal is there a common apparition that people see like people often say you can sometimes see Anne tottenham perhaps or they think it's <laughs> it's her the most recent lockdown like i write a little blog um mm-hmm. i think it's actually good to keep uh, a record of lockdowns if that makes sense and on the last lockdown you're very correct in saying people experience or feel or, you know what I mean, see and Tottenham. Um, a very interesting one in the last lockdown was a very young child. People kept saying that it was like they're in the presence of a young child. And I think the word Michael was used. I think that mm. was a name or something that was used. But in a number of different locations, it was like a child was um, present in the room or with the group or whatever. But um, yeah, and Tottenham is definitely a common one. And feeling the dread in uh, the tapestry room is one. Yeah. And then moving throughout the house, um, you've got various, as I said, shadows, footsteps, and knockings and uh, scrapings kind of thing is a common thing down there as well. Do people hear the legendary horse hooves, as it was reported? I've never personally uh, heard someone saying that they've heard that. I'll tell you one thing, though. I would love to hear it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Something, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, I'd, I'd love it. But no, um, I've never actually physically... Uh, the closest that they've said is there's definitely uh, footsteps, knockings like doors, kind of knocking on doors, footsteps yeah. outside the door. And to be honest, we're the kind of crew and team that... If um, a member of the public says that, we'll check it straight away. You know what I mean? We kind of go down the route of let's find the origin of the activity because it's better to kind of find the source and not be wondering where it's coming from. You know what I mean? Yeah, certainly. From a team point of view, like we went down there on our own um, a couple of nights as well. That's, as I said to you, the most interesting times we've caught is the music on the EVP, the time team and Wayne felt very uncomfortable and uh, I think there was another time when I wasn't actually on the team at the time. I think they stayed in the tapestry room all night, would you believe? They stayed there on the blow-up mats. Yes. And apparently the tapestry room door opened and something or something or someone walked in around the room 
walked in and walked back out through the door and that was it there was no other kind of explanation obviously the lights came on the torches i should say came on everyone looked around each other yeah and uh there's no kind of explanation of what or who or where it went <laughs> right is there a general feeling that the dark stranger is still around or is that kind of past from what i've seen with people I know a lot of people have said Anne Tottenham because that's the common yeah. thing that people also say. As regards an evil presence, like I'm not going to say what my opinion is because mm-hmm. I don't want people thinking I'm trying to plant a seed or anything like right, that. Right, right. But seven times out of ten, you would get a certain individual saying you, it, they just don't feel comfortable. Yeah. There's just something about the place that's not right. You could imagine with the story and the legend that Anne Tottenham was a very kind of calm soul, a very friendly person, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, she wouldn't be causing the kind of uneasiness or the dread. Or I could be completely wrong, yeah. but there is something that people just say they just do not like about that house. There's something just dark and just either love it or you hate it, but the majority of the time people just go in there saying, no, I'm not having this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With regard to the legend, in Rick Whelan's film, they depicted the Dark Stranger's departure as almost like a ball lightning event. What are the various descriptions you've heard? I mean, did he turn into a ball of fire or did he just leap through the ceiling or what do you think is the most prevalent? Yeah, the most prevalent one is definitely, without question, and I can literally say without question, is the ball of fire. He's meant to literally, once his disguise or once his guise was uncovered of who he actually was, Uh it's literally in a split second, it was a ball of flames on the chair beside the people and literally just straight out through the roof, yeah. And that's actually, interestingly, the same, more or less the same in the Hellfire Club and Castletown House. It was meant to have happened the same way. That was the same exit, so which is interesting. You know, to me, it's very interesting that three locations have the same story, same architect, same story, same kind of dark stranger or cloven who, you know, I just find that very interesting. Would you see those as three individual stories or one that's been borrowed twice from where it originally took um, place? I don't know. I'd say probably, I'd, now, obviously, I'd love it to be three totally individual stories. And obviously, people will argue the fact, oh, it's a story that's, just been handed down, handed down, handed down, you know. But I, myself personally, I'd love it to be three separate because I want to walk into <laughs> these places and convince me, you know what I mean? Yeah. I want yeah. to walk in there and say, right, you're here, prove it to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's always an element of the story when it comes to demons and the devil that they can't completely hide themselves. There's always an element yeah, that gets yeah. discovered about them, and then the, the jig's up at that point. They have to uh, take off. I have a huge fascination with um, demons and, you know, the whole lure behind them. Mm-hmm. I absolutely do. Like, I have books here that are encyclopedias of demons and dictionaries. Oh, it's crazy. To kind of, again, I don't practice any of us just to right, make, right. make people obviously care about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. every third Saturday, you yeah. go down to the Hellfire Club, <laughs> yeah. you know, a small as, meeting. Yeah, as one does. Yeah, yeah, as one does. Yeah, I actually own the Hellfire Club now. <laughs> Is it on private land? No, no, it's oh. totally open to the public. You will get a lot of people there you now on the likes of Saturdays and Sundays. And nobody's worried about liability, about somebody breaking their neck. And like, if this was America, that would be the freak out. Somebody's going to go in there and hurt themselves oh, and yeah. sue oh, me. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. For one of a better word, yeah, it's public access. Absolutely open. To, it's like walking into a public park. I know mm. it's not a public park, but that's the kind of best description I can give it. You can come and go. As you, now, there is a, a car park down at the bottom of it. I think the gate oh. closes at... Nine o'clock or something. Oh, like okay. That so, the... so the government is managing it. Yeah. The, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you know who Aiden bought it from? Was it Bono? The Devros. 
the Devereaux. Yeah. Was yeah. Bono ever involved? As far as I'm aware, no. Okay. <laughs> Another myth. Another myth, yeah, yeah. There's some things that we'd all want to know that are unanswerable, yeah. I think. It's like what you said earlier. It's the main bullet points of the legend are the stormy night, the dark stranger came to the house. There was a card game played in the card room. The cloven hoof was uncovered underneath the table. After that, as you said, the disguise was given up. He burst into a ball of flames and went out through the roof. Then after that, it kind of varies, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, with the tapestry room, the kind of main bullet point would be, yeah, and Tottenham was, as the legend goes, locked in there for an absolute immense amount of time. She went insane or broken-hearted, a combination of the both. Um, she was buried in a specifically made coffin and uh, I suppose the last bullet point then from that era would have been the exorcism and uh, some people say it was successful and uh, other people say it wasn't um, that the majority of whatever was in the house was removed from every part of the room into the tapestry room and for want of a better word locked in there and uh, kind of trapped in there if that makes sense kind of like that dog is with you right now. It's trapped. Oh, you're, can you hear them? <laughs> They're very loud, yeah. <laughs> That's quite all right. Well, here's another question I have. It never seems to come up. How is it that this guy got let in the house and nobody asked him who he was, or where he was yeah, from? A name. Yeah, any kind of anything, name at all. Yeah. I've never actually seen or heard of a name. Yeah. It's always the dark stranger. I think, in my opinion... And from chatting and, you know, looking at history, I think that the Loftuses wasn't the Loftuses at the time. It would have been back to the Tottenham's because Charles would have reaffirmed his kind of authority with surnames. Mm-hmm. But um, I think they just wanted to be seen as this family that was so powerful that anyone could come up and they wanted to just show off their kind of um, riches and power by welcoming this man that appeared to be really polite, really well-dressed, and really just kind of elegant in its in his own way. He kind mm-hmm. of, it's like he kind of charmed his way into the house, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Actually, that's probably the best way I could describe it. It's like he came to the house and he charmed his way in. And even with the, the way Anne is meant to have fallen in love with him, and then obviously when he was uncovered, he kind of revealed his whole kind of sinister background so to speak so yeah it's like the kind of two-edged sword again he kind of charmed his way in but again obviously charles wanted to be seen to be this kind of higher power that could uh show off his attributes and show off his kind of riches by bringing him in and supporting him you know yeah in that case allegorically maybe he's suffering a little bit for his pride wanting to show off yeah. because the dark stranger shows up and he seems really slick yeah. and he wants to impress him. He lets him in and maybe it yeah. just never, yeah. never occurs to say, what's your name? Absolutely. You're just so Absolutely. busy trying to yeah. show off, which is exactly. a, a sin. All right, let me ask you another question. In your book, Charles Loftus is not the kind of person you really want to spend a lot of time with. <laughs> Did you make up his character or have you heard stories about his nature? In reality, as I said at the start of the book, I did have to obviously make him out to be the ultimate villain, if that kind of makes sense. Like the Dark Stranger was meant to be the villain, but I wanted kind of Charles to be kind of the villain as well. Oh, now, he was. There is, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not trying to disrespect the characters at the time. I'm not saying that everything within the pages is every single action that they carried out but just from hearing the legend and what they would what kind of father would lock his daughter away in a room for years on end and let her die in there that's the first kind of inkling where i began to myself right what kind of man was this 
and just from hearing various different kind of stages of the legend, I just said, right, he has to be kind of not nice. So I tried to make him on the other kind of side of that sort. There would have been elements that I would have added to that, definitely, without question, yeah. The major renovations that happened, like when they brought in the staircase and all that, was that, that was after the event? Right? Or before it? The renovations would have been afterwards, yeah. The event, and maybe you know this date. They were pretty close together, though, right? Yeah, 1765 or 66. Yeah. Yeah. And the renovations happened in the 1870s. Oh, like 100 years later. So the renovations were 100 years later. But those are major renovations. Yeah. With the major renovations, it would cover it up even more. It would obfuscate it. But you know what would be interesting to me is in this day and age, you know, Aiden or somebody could bring in to the card room or into the room above it yeah. Uh, like a ground penetrating radar or something and scan yeah. the floor and look for repaired damage and then go up to the next floor and see if you can do it in the next room above that as well. And yeah. that would be interesting or some kind of modern oh, technology. Actually, yeah. yeah, some kind of modern technology to determine if there was a hole through the entire structure. Absolutely, yeah. You know, but well, with a major would... renovation that it could have all been replaced. That's also <laughs> part of the legend is that the hole, the damage resisted repair. Yeah. Until the 1870s. When you walk in there, fellas, it's not a hole. Yeah. Straight out from it. Like, there is obviously covering up above. It's a huge kind of three-story structure, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There is covering, obviously, on the very top roof. Yes. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, Because if not... Like, let's be honest here, if not, the rain would be pouring in and the whole place would be <laughs> sure. <destroyed. But> I, <laughs> Right, 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 right. There's heavy renovations done. Um, but there's not obvious remnants of the original hole in any of the three floors, right? As far as I know, like, there would be... Did you I'm go up in s- the attic? Oh, Jesus, no, I've never been in the attic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you mentioned it, I'm going to go into it the next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the original door of the hall is there, where the Dark Stranger... Was apparently meant to. Remember when I was saying about the logo up above the door yes, and yes. all that kind of stuff? That's there. As regards the main building, I'd be quite honest with you, I wouldn't be too sure. I definitely know there was heavy renovations done in the 1800s. But as regards the foundations of the building, as far as I know, it's still the same foundations. But yes, definitely there was heavy renovations done. But there is certain parts of the building that are still of the old, if that makes sense. No, I wouldn't be able to bring you down and point you, oh, that wall there is the original wall, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But you know which room, we know which room was the card room, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do know the room that the story supposedly took place in. Yeah, yeah. Chris, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show, especially on such short notice and really shedding a lot more light on the legend and the origins of the legend. I want to encourage everybody to pick up his book, The Legend of Loftus Hall, which having a copy of the paper book, which I want to thank our listener Tony (laughs) for again, is really great to have in hand. But you can also get it on the Kindle. And Chris, I hate to tell you this, but I have Kindle Unlimited and they even gave it to me for free. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) like I said, I like having both copies. But anyway, thank you for coming on. and, And maybe we can have you back on about some other Irish legends in the future. Oh, absolutely, guys. I have to say, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, and I'm delighted uh, you've reached out and had a, got in contact with me, because I like kind of keeping stuff alive, if that makes sense. And sure. I think, I, I think by chatting about it and doing it, it helps. You mentioned a blog. Where's your blog? <laughs> oh, it does be on Facebook. If you go onto Facebook and check out um, Paranormal Researchers Ireland, Okay. Um, every time we do a lockdown in various buildings, uh, like Loftus Hall, Wicklow Jail, Glenhar Court, like just numerous locations around the country we do, I'll write a blog the next day or the next couple of days just um, kind of referring to the experiences people had, you know. Hey. 
Hello everyone, I'm Nina Rosenfeld and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. That was a lot of fun talking to him. I, I just oh. want to thank you again, Chris. When you're listening to this, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. We'd love to go on a tour of Ireland's most haunted places with Chris. What better guide would there be? Yeah, I'm yeah. going to put that on the books, actually. That sounds like a lot of fun. All right. So it's time to talk about the common theories behind mm-hmm. the story. A lot of people have looked at this story and tried to determine what elements of it are are true, what's not true, what is the seed of it? Like any story you find, there's some kind of seed. Like one of the eye-openers for me was when we covered the Jersey Devil and how that went back to this whole political infighting between the Quakers. And that was just so fascinating to me. So you always try to find those roots, but then by the same token, there a lot of times is a seed of truth, some unbelievable thing that put the whole thing in motion. So when we take a look at this story, we're going to talk about that stuff now as we begin to wrap up the series here. Exactly. If you take a look at these people having really lived and existed, which they did, and perhaps there really was a dark, mysterious stranger that did show up that departed in a most unusual way, and Anne really did have a bout of depression right after that, and you want to accept that part of it. But then wonder what really happened that night or what actually happened to Anne. What was the incident like? And that, again, that's accepting that there was some kind of incident on that night. So one of the most common theories is that Anne freaked out because she did look under the table for some reason. She either dropped her ring, she dropped the cards. She wasn't dealt enough cards, so she looked under the table for that extra card that may have fallen. For whatever reason, everybody has to look under the table. And once she looks under the table, there she sees that the stranger actually has a club foot, or what's medically known as Talapes equinovarus, or equinovarus. Equine, I'm going to guess, has something to do with a horse. Yes. And a horse's hoof, or something your foot looks, it's turned, and it's also commonly referred to as club foot. So Anne sees that he has a club foot, and again, I don't think he would be without his boot or shoe, so she'd be seeing a barefoot. I don't know how that would happen. But in combination with that, in the rational skeptical side, again, accepting that there was an incident, at that very moment, there is an occurrence of ball lightning, (laughs) which they mistook for this guy turning into a ball of flame and shooting through the roof. Now, we've talked about ball lightning quite a bit before, but that would have to be quite a coincidence. Yeah, and I do want to point out that ball lightning was speculative for a long time, but it has since been captured on film. They know that it does, in fact, exist, just for the record. Oh, yeah, it's not a myth. It exists, but it's very rare. Extremely rare. It does cause injury sometimes. It can cause damage. We know that. But for those two things to happen at the same time seems quite a coincidence. Also, it reminds me of the Berwyn Mountains incident where the rational explanation was there was an earthquake and at that very moment, a huge flash of lightning. Yeah. And that's what people saw. Yeah. If you're going to go that route, then yeah, the earthquake lights. Actually, that's a phenomenon that people have said to have seen that during an earthquake, the earth releases a form of strange energy that produces light. Right. That's another proven phenomenon. That's not a theoretical one. Yeah. Does that fit here? Well, who knows? It's a little out there. And again, that's accepting or taking into account that there was a weird stranger and a weird incident. But put that aside for a second. What we do know is that Anne did have a lot of trouble after that, shall we say, in whatever form. She was not enjoying good mental health after that. She was in a terrible emotional state and deteriorating physical state. And she was kept in a room that's one version, or she just refused to come out. That's why I chose to include the Pam Babcock story, is that that does happen, and people can choose to do that, and the people around them are incapable of dealing with that. And in this time, as we said before, that is probably likely. They didn't have much understanding of mental health issues. 
a lot of times that was attributed to demonic or spiritual problems. And in Pam's case, though, when her boyfriend, Corey, was sentenced by the judge, she wrote the judge herself. She wrote a letter saying, please be lenient on him. It's not his fault. It was my thing. It was, had nothing to do with him. He was being nice, and I really didn't want to come out of the bathroom. It's my fault. That's why he had a lighter sentence. But in both cases, there is neglect by default. Yes, Corey, he's, he didn't know how to deal with it, but you don't wait two years. Maybe a couple of weeks, like after that long period, it's like, okay, this is not changing. It's been two weeks. She's still on the toilet. In Anne's case, who knows? Because the other two theories is that she was either such an embarrassment that they willfully kind of locked her away or didn't let her out or didn't really want her to get out and didn't want visitors to see her because she was in such a distraught physical state as well. I'm and sure. also an embarrassment to the family. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, she was terribly embarrassing. Yeah. Or they just didn't know what to do with her and she refused to come out. That is another very popular part of the story where she was so distraught. All she wanted to do was look out the window and she ate and drank very little. I mean, you can't last nine years or 10 years without eating anything. They must have fed her something or she just didn't eat very well and languished for a long time and just really started to go downhill. So they just left the situation like that, which is, yes, especially nowadays, a form of neglect. Does it amount to abuse? We don't know. So if you go back to the person who was writing for the website, Tottenham.name, and is jotting down the pedigree of the family, they state that Reed's account, remember Reverend George Reed, his account represents Anne throughout the whole story as being a poor, ill-used victim of an austere and hard-hearted father and a storybook stepmother. That is what the author states, but also quoting, no evidence in support of this view is forthcoming, and one may suspect that Reed, whose account of his own experiences seems curiously unconvincing, was carried away by his desire to make a good story of it. But that, perhaps, is the feeling of one who is inclined to agree with Queen Victoria. Being, remember, she didn't believe in that kind of stuff. Right. So that's the statement by somebody who's really studied that family and the family history and the pedigree. You talked about this earlier. It seems like that is the viewpoint of, yeah, this guy was really a jerk, a real mean father. The stepmother was no angel herself, and they just said, better she just stay in the room, throw some food at her. That is another version of a Victorian story that doesn't end well. You know what I'm saying? It's sure. a classic fairy tale where you're just locked away like Rapunzel, except there's no one to rescue you there. Her dark hero never comes back for her. Or he's circling the house and can't get in there. Right. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. And Scott, you know more about this King's Messenger version of the story, right? You know, where supposedly was... this King's Messenger shows up. They become enamored with each other and they either start fooling around or they get caught fooling around. And the father gets incredibly upset. One version of this story, he challenges the messenger to a duel mm -hmm. and wins the duel and kills mm -hmm. the messenger. Yeah, who is properly buried somewhere on the property yes. to cover it up. That actually could be very likely for this time period. There were many places where dueling at certain periods of time was illegal. I know in England it was for a period of time in the, I think, mid-19th century. I'm not sure when that law was enacted, but you had to do it on the sly if you were going to do that. And of course, uh, our own Aaron Burr was killed in a duel. Yes, he was. So what happened, and if you're more of the rational mind and skeptical about this whole story, that does seem to be the more likely explanation, was that they were enamored with each other, and in The Stranger, the father finds out, maybe catches them in the act, and says, that's it, pistols at dawn. He's killed, and 
you never see him again. The gravity of that situation is greatly increased when you think of the possibility of how much she felt for this guy. And if she, you know, if he existed in this mm -hmm. version of the story is true, if she was in love with him and her father killed him, she is going to be heartbroken, especially if she witnesses this happening. And then if you wanted to up the stakes even further, you might imagine that she may have been pregnant by him right. or had a kid with him, or maybe he visited the house more than once. Mm -hmm. And that became apparent as things began to unfold. And then there's this out of wedlock child. And not only that, there's a whole class issue between her and a messenger. That's mm -hmm. not good either. Right. So it gets into this whole situation. And you can see where, if that was a true story, how that might drive her to the brink of insanity, especially if there was a child involved or a pregnancy. So it gets infinitely more complex. And as far out as it is in terms of speculation, at the same time, it's a lot more believable probably than the devil shooting through the roof. Depending on your belief system. Depending on your belief system, right. indeed. You know, you might say that that's far-fetched as well. It's conjecture. It certainly is. All of this is conjecture. We don't know what the status of Anne and this stranger is. Or even if there was a stranger, what we can believe to be true is that Anne suffered some kind of mental breakdown and languished. And then there's the fairly solid story that we've already talked about of the skeleton. I believe that is noted of the time. In the 1870s, during that refurbishing, a skeleton was discovered bricked into the wall of the tapestry room where she was hanging out all that time. But no one seems to know whether it was a child's skeleton, an infant's, or an adult's. Right, so imagine that. The story of this skeleton, that's come up in a few places. There doesn't seem to be anyone really disputing it. However, we don't know what happened to it. They found it, and presumably if they moved it or buried it somewhere on the grounds or took it to a cemetery, we don't know if it was a child or an adult. Either way, it could play into any version of the story we just yeah. said. It could be the messenger who was killed in a duel or just any other lover who got <laughs> caught in that particular situation, or it could be a child that was maybe stillborn or something like that. It's hard to fathom that they would have actually killed a child right. just because of its father being of questionable background. But whatever the case may be, if she witnessed that or she knew that that child or lover was bricked up in the wall and then on top of that she was locked in there, who would not go insane under those circumstances? Yeah, it's creepy to be sure. And again, apparently that is noted from the 1870s that workmen did find something there, bones at least, but not too much more than that as far as we could find. But what it does tell you is that house definitely has secrets buried in it, literally. One thing that we do know that seems to be certain about the story is that Father Brodus was lauded by these Protestant families who probably normally wouldn't care about a Catholic priest that much or the folks of the town and how he was viewed there, but they did seem to really admire him and were very thankful for his work. And so there was a friendly argument and they compromised by having Father Brodus buried in a half Catholic, half Protestant cemetery, which we said before was the Whore Cemetery. Yes. So, Whore Town. Yes, Whore Town. So again, what was known is that he was a character in this story who was real and was very well respected and thanked, it seems, for his service and for what he did to quell the house of its spiritual problems. Banish the devil from Loftus Hall. There you go. Let's talk a little bit about some of the more recent 
spiritual, shall we say, activity that's taking place at Loftus Hall? Yeah, the most common activity. What's commonly reported? Well, there's a lot of things that are not going to surprise you here. One is uh, ghostly horses are said to be heard roaming the grounds. Yeah, not just one horse ridden by the devil around the perimeter, but just horses in general. And that's really fascinating to me because it always reminds me of things that people are said to have heard near Stonehenge and in some of the surrounding countryside, mm -hmm. they hear thundering hooves that seem to be maybe like they're listening to a different time period or something. Which yeah, is, that, I think it, I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I love hearing about that kind of stuff. Was it the Time Life books? That was one of the very first strange things I'd read as a kid, a famous report of somebody in this one spot hearing what sounded like, oh, we, we've talked about this before. Yes. Somebody saying they thought that they heard like a full-on audio clip, what sounded like is could be a scene from a movie, a full contingency of horses with men in armor clanking, yelling. It sounds like a military column going by, but nobody being there. Yes. And I remember that as a kid, like, how is that possible? That's crazy. But there have been instances of people hearing out-of-place audio as well as seeing out-of-place imagery from times gone by. Yeah, and I think that's really fascinating, especially with this story that's attached to this house. There's also been apparitions of British soldiers. Yeah, they're everywhere, though. Yeah, they're, they're everywhere. Your friend Mark saw some yeah, we uh, saw that coats, right? In the Laughing Indian story. It wasn't him. It was his mom would see that's them right. when she was out in the uh, working in the yard. But only out of the corner of her eye. And when she moved, they moved with her they, vision. They stayed in her peripheral vision. Yeah, pretty yeah. fascinating. Some people see a dark entity that they think is the devil himself. There are rumors that the location was actually used by Satanists for dark rituals during the long periods of abandonment when nobody was even with, it may have still been under someone's ownership, but no one clearly was living there and still no one is. Yeah. And therefore it was easy for people to go in and do whatever they wanted or squat in it. I mean, you heard the stories about the Sally house and the, even though Les owns that house, he had to put an alarm system in because people were breaking into it. That was the only way he could bring a stop to that. So yeah, that seems to be also weirdly and unfortunately very common is any abandoned edifice or location or cave is somehow eventually used by Satanists. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking because a couple of places we're going to talk about here in a minute also had that reputation, as well as the limestone caves near Atchison. Yeah. They seem to get around and they always need places. There's probably a website they can go to that tells you where you know where you can where's the closest abandoned haunted house that we can pull off a ritual. Demonic B and B. Yeah, demonic B and B. Nice. That's not joking. Or just people playing around and painting the symbols, but whatever they're doing, it just it happens everywhere and seems to have happened in this place, or at least there's stories of it. That's the stuff I saw at the time that I went and visited Lydia's Bridge in North Carolina. Yeah. There was clearly evidence of that kind of stuff. It's just a thing that has to happen, apparently. Yeah. Well, along with that, there's disembodied children's voices, phantom crying by children. Could it be Anne's long lost baby that she had? Here's uh, the other thing about that story. It's only just now occurring to me whether it was a baby or not. It could have been that it was a baby that was born and was okay, but then died at a young age due mm -hmm. to an illness or something. Yeah, and that contributed to her emotional state. Yes. The other things are pretty common. Orbs, your favorite. <laughs> Sudden temperature drops, general feelings of foreboding and unease, and of course, the flickering lights. What was that Onion article you found where the powerful demon comes back Oh, and summons all of his dark energy just to flick some lights and throw silverware. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great article. That was just I tweeted that that was out just a week or two ago. But yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to know what Loftus Hall actually looks like on the inside nowadays, you can because there is a website called Loftus Hall after dot com and they have webcams set up and they will show you scenes of the hall 
after dark when the tours have left and no one's in there and some of these cams rotate back and forth automatically so you get a view of the room when i looked the last time i'm not sure that the cams were all functioning but you get a picture of the inside if you're curious well i'll tell you what i'm looking right now it's 11 15 p.m in ireland oh a good time to look yeah and i'm looking in the house now i see the cams moving around i'm looking in the tapestry room, actually. This website is pretty cool, but yeah, you can see it. It's live. Also, I did want to give a shout out to the current owner of the home, Aiden Quigley, who we yeah. did not speak to directly, but has been sharing information with us through Chris Rush right. and sent us some pictures to use as well. So, Mr. Quigley, thank you very, very much for sharing that. We hope we can get over there and take a tour of your house. Oh, very cool. Also, speaking of ghost photos, there's a pretty good ghost photo from a specific tour at Loftus Hall. Yeah, this comes from an article. I mean, this photo is all over the place, but we did find one article talking about it back in August of 2014. And we have a link to that article in our show notes. But this gentleman, Thomas Beavis, who was 21 at the time from Lewisham, had taken some pictures, which he didn't apparently look at until later out in the front of Loftus Hall, of a tour group out in the front. And after looking at them later, noticed that there appeared to be a faint reflection or image of two ghostly looking characters just inside the window to the right of the front door of the house. And it's pretty fascinating to look at because the one girl is a younger girl that appears to have long, dark, curly hair. And you might say, oh, well, it's just somebody from the tour group and it's a reflection, but her dress is not appropriate for the period. She No, it yeah. looks like a gown, a billowy gown that is cinched at the waist by a sash or a belt yeah most likely probably a sash it does look very period with that i don't know what you call the neckline but you've seen it you know like it's like very a high up. dress yeah, yeah very high but, up neckline encroaching on the bottom of her neck and then just to the right of her there's what looks like an old lady with white hair who not too different looking from norman's mom in psycho <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> so, white or gray hair parted down the middle pulled back probably into a bun. Yeah, a bit of, of a kind. receding hairline. Yeah. And those two ladies are in the reflection of the window on the first floor. The only window, I might add, that at this point is not sealed up. All the first yeah. floor windows are sealed up. The door is still there. Obviously, that's how people get into the house. But yeah, it's pretty freaky looking. It's pretty clear to me that it's at least not a reflection of any of the tour group because the people standing directly in front of that window which the reflection would show that would be the people standing close to the glass does not look like them. There's a woman in a pink sweatshirt or jacket right in front of that. Certainly doesn't match her. There's no older woman also near anybody else that you can see that you can see and that larger zoom out. So it's just interesting. And if there were people on the other side of the glass, you would see them more clearly. They would not look like a reflection. They would just look like they were in the window. So if you want to know why these grounds are so haunted, because we often see that with these stories, people do believe that it could be the house, it could be the ground that the house sits on, it could be a combination of all three, and you want to back up to the very first instances of human contact with the soil, with the terra. As far as that we know of. Well, if you look at pre-Christian times, saying going back before Raymond Legros and the Norman invasion and the year 1000. And you look to the earliest inhabitants, some of the earliest inhabitants of Southern Ireland in this area, there are people that believe that this has something to do with Celtic Druids and their practices. So you'd be hard-pressed to find any real written documentation because there's only a couple of historians from the Roman period, I believe, 
who took notes of the Druid practices as they encountered them because the Druids and the Celts themselves did not keep good records or many records at all. It was only other cultures observing them and other stories that they had heard of the Celts. But what we do know is they did practice quite a bit of human sacrifice. And that region being where it is, they probably lived there. Like I said, it's a good location for port cities and port towns, and everybody benefits from access to the water and having land nearby and, and boats being able to get in and out. So it's likely that they were around during the time. And does this have anything to do with it? People believe that there were sacred Druid Celtic practices going on. They believed the area to be very sacred and performed a lot of their rituals there. And for the Celts, they were rooted in the pagan traditions of magic and mysticism and these rituals, and it was very important to them. And I'm sure that these lands were sacred to them. So who really knows what went on there? But I think it's safe to say that at least they practiced their religious beliefs and their customs, which did involve sacrifice on these lands. And this soil had seen blood from those times as well. I think I know why we don't know anything about the Druids. Yes. Because the human sacrifice part, do you mm -hmm. know who they were probably sacrificing? No. The scribes, the guys that, were, the guys that wrote everything down. <laughs> well, that Grab would, him. Before he finishes that sentence. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would make some Throw sense. Throw his stupid books in there, too, in his papers. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, and I believe that there are historical theories as to why they did not keep good records. It might be something as simple as the nature of their language or lack thereof, or writing systems. Yeah, and uh, I, I used to know, actually, this is because we looked into that series recently, but not that particular lecture. And what was interesting is that, yeah, it's, it's fascinating what was left behind. And the only things that we do know about them, I remember this fact, that the ancient Druids only practiced their sacred ceremonies in hemlock groves, according to a Greek historian. Okay. That's an observation by somebody else outside of that culture commenting on their practices. So the people at Stonehenge, the Neo-Druids who do their rituals there, it's unlikely there would have been anything going along because there's no forest groves there. Sure. They are into trees. So the lack of trees on this peninsula, maybe there wasn't any Druid practices going on there. That's another sideline, but it's, it's hard to know. Also, there's precedent for civilizations having either intentionally destroying information about themselves, or also if they're overtaken by some other civilization or they didn't keep their records in a permanent way, they just would be gone. It would just be lost. It could be wiped out by a new group, like for you'd look at ISIS destroying religious relics in the Middle East and that sort of thing. That's not the, certainly not the first time that's happened. And also records may not be being kept in a way that are permanent. That's one of the reasons that Egyptians were able to leave so much behind was because they carved it into stone. You're not even listening to me, are you? Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was rambling. I, no, I admit I, it. I admit well, it. At least you're doing it for a change. No, I, I was I was listening about uh, your cult practices, and I actually just looked up in my notes here because I was not totally correct. But it was Pliny the Elder was talking about the ancient Celtic Druids and how they would only worship in oak groves. Oak groves? Yeah, not hemlock. I oh, was, okay. I, was, I was confusing my Greek stuff. Yes, yes, you gotcha, <laughs> so, gotcha. So the idea, though, is that they probably wouldn't be doing their ceremonies on the summer solstice at Stonehenge, like you see modern-day Druids doing. Because there's no oak groves there. Right. No known oak groves. And so then you got to wonder, well, were the Celtic Druids doing anything on the peninsula? Because, as we said before, it's so windy 
and harsh weather-wise that trees don't really grow well there unless there's some kind of protective barrier. Remember, we talked about that earlier, that it doesn't seem to be any tree growth there unless it was behind that wall. Not only that, it blows your robe up and makes you look, well, it's embarrassing. I'm sure that that was refreshing. Yeah. That right? didn't really care too much about. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Is seeing under uh, Rory's robe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, but it's interesting to know things like that about history your joke earlier about them killing the scribes. Well, there's not much documentation regardless of the cause. So we don't know, but you got to wonder about what went on there. And that I look at it this way. It's not like it's so remote that people wouldn't land there and want the land. It's a good place to live. If you got to be in that area, it was coveted by generations after that and Anglo Normans off the Island of Ireland. So like I said, it's a good place to set up shop. So there's probably long histories of inhabitation before any kind of documentation or known records. So my point there, ancient lands, and what do we know about ancient lands? The longer there's been human habitation on them, the more ghosty kind of weird spiritual stuff happens. Well, something else that's mentioned quite often as a connection to Loftus Hall and the Loftus family is a connection to a similar story from the Hellfire Club. And if you know anything about that, there are Hellfire Clubs in England and Ireland. So the connection to this story is that a lot of really, let's say, really randy activity was going on at these Hellfire Clubs that was frowned upon by genteel society, including a lot of drinking and gambling and even perhaps some devil worshiping. I mean, a lot of that appears to have been done to mock current polite society or joke about it or just shock people. But there are a lot of accounts where that was actually taking place. And in one card game, as we said, gambling would go on all night, mostly by these politicians who were nobility as well, and a lot of soldiers, officers. The similar story happened, that the devil shows up for a card game. He's kind of a stranger, but he's let in. He drops a card. Someone drops a card. They look under the table, and they see a cloven hoof, and poof, he's gone in a ball of fire, or somehow disappears. That's another similar story that was floating around. And then people believe that there is a connection to the Hellfire Club and Montpelier Hill and a hunting lodge known as Dolly Mount, which was owned and built by Henry Loftus. And he took residence in 1666. And that number, of course, seems to have significance with people. Yeah. And I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe 2014, that it was the 666th anniversary of Loftus Hall. A lot of number play going on here. But yeah, people believe that there is a connection to this Dolly Mount residence at the time and the Loftus family. And maybe there's some kind of pact with the devil going on. And that's why he shows up and cheats at cards. So I did find one interesting connection between Henry Loftus, the first Earl of Eli, and the fourth Viscount Loftus, who was the younger son of Nicholas Loftus and Anne Ponsonby. His mother, Anne Ponsonby, was the daughter of William Ponsonby, the first Viscount Duchanan. Now, this is Anne, Anne's mother, our Anne Tottenham's mother. That's who we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, All right, so I, I just want to make that clear. This right. is Henry and Anne, who were the parents in the house, and this Anne Ponsonby was Anne Tottenham's mother. She is definitely connected, as you'll see here. William Ponsonby also had a son, Henry Ponsonby, an Irish infantry officer and politician and was reportedly a member in good standing of the Irish Hellfire Club. All right. And so what we know is there aren't many written records of the Hellfire Clubs because <laughs> they were doing things they didn't want people to know about. And that's why they were often in uh, locations that weren't easy to get to. 
because these were respectable, at least on the outside, members of society and political life and the ruling class who were then at the time known for their reputations as being libertines and 'er ne'er-do-wells and just, you know, gamblers, drunkards, womanizers, all that kind of stuff. And they had a club to do it at. So as you may not know, but some people in our audience do because they've actually pitched us to cover this guy who founded the Irish Hellfire Club, Richard Parsons, the first Earl of Ross, and his buddy James Worsdale. We've had some Irish listeners ask us to look into that because he's quite a character. They founded the first Irish Hellfire Club. And of course, they also did not keep good records or purposely did not keep records of who were members and what they did. But James Worsdale could paint portraits well enough. He was kind of a scoundrel, not nobility, but a real rascal that was a good talker. He wormed his way into these societies, uh, these literary circles. And also he's palling around with Parsons, who's nobility, but he's not. Kind of a con man of sorts. But he started off portrait painting. So he could paint well enough to be accepted and get commissions. And he did a painting called the Hellfire Club Dublin. And in the painting are five members of the club seated around a table. Now listen to this literal rogues gallery here around this table painted in the picture, Henry, the fourth Baron Barry of Santry, who was tried and convicted for murder in 1739, but later pardoned. Simon Luttrell, who was Lord Earnham, later Earl of Carhampton, and at one time the Sheriff of Dublin, and his rakish behavior earned him the nickname King of Hell, Hell being a district of Dublin notorious for brothels. He's also believed to have had a poem written about him, the Diobolyad, dedicated to, quote, the worst man in England. So this guy is also a bit of a character. One story from the Hellfire Club while at Mount Pillier has Luttrell making a pact with the devil for his soul. Within seven years, the devil would clear his debts. But when the devil came to Mount Pillier Lodge for Luttrell's soul, he distracted the devil and escaped. Classic trick the devil story. (laughs) (laughs) The three other guys in the painting are Colonel Richard St. George, Colonel Clements, and Colonel Henry Ponsonby. It seems the brother of Anne Ponsonby, Henry Loftus's mother. So the party animal, Henry Ponsonby, was Henry Loftus's uncle. So there's a lot of Henrys in there, I know. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of family connections. And not to disparage any surviving descendants. I certainly don't want to do that. But there are connections to some of the most infamous self-described dissolute libertines in the 18th century in England and Ireland. It's kind of like the original Bad Boys Club. And these guys really did party hard. Party hard. If they had drugs and rock and roll to go along with their exploits back then, (laughs) their sex and their booze, they all would have died during the first weekend. So from this painting, we can see that there was a family connection to the Loftuses, the Ponsonby's, and the Hellfire Club, at least with the uncle. Not saying Henry was was that way. Certainly, we all know family members where you have that one uncle who yeah. <laughs> likes to have a few at Thanksgiving, whatever yeah. it is. But there is a connection there to the Hellfire Clubs, and that's what people were saying, that you know Henry Loftus had a more stronger connection, that maybe the devil's involved, because with these clubs... There were a lot of tales. It it might be just speculation on the part of the townsfolk there and the neighbors and wondering what was going on there. Obviously, a lot of drinking and partying and women who were usually not seen in the pubs in regular polite society would be hanging out there. So they knew some nefarious stuff was going on there. It was not acceptable. And there are also a lot of stories of devil worshiping and the devil just hanging out there quite a bit because that's his scene. Well, in conclusion, these are my final thoughts on this whole story here. All of this land and these buildings have such a long, rich history of wild happenings with notable characters. And it's really hard to tell what really took place that night at Loftus Hall. 
But the idea of creating a story to cover the neglect and embarrassment of a daughter with mental and emotional issues, which suggests the devil shot through your roof and that's why your daughter isn't seen so much, to me it sounds like it would make the storyteller crazier and weirder in the ears of the listener than just saying like, well, she's a bit touched. Yeah. You know, so she doesn't like to come out in public and we don't know what to do with her or just not talk about her at all. So inventing a story like that, like, well, that's why she's freaked out, you know, because the devil was here. It's like, well, why is the devil hanging out at your place? You don't want any association with that. So I'm not sure how that story started, but it just seems to me to be kind of a crazy stretch and not a good idea by people who are well-educated, socially conscious and concerned with their noble gentry peers and what they thought. Who knows? (laughs) So the devil keeps popping up all over the place in this enchanted land, and the Loftus family seems to be connected to a few of these stories. And if you haven't noticed by now, we intentionally did not mention the Tottenham Hotspurs, (laughs) the the London Football Club, because we're not getting in the middle of all that. (laughs) We know how intense those rivalries are, so you folks can hash that all out amongst yourselves. But getting back to the Loftus families and the Tottenham's and even the Redmonds, I don't think that anyone can directly tie any of them to a pact with the devil for ownership of Redmond Hall or Dolly Mount, although it might be fun to wonder about. What I think is undeniable, if you believe any of this at all, is that Loftus Hall is definitely haunted and a pretty cool piece of Irish history you can actually go explore. And if you don't believe in spirits, then it's just a really cool piece of Irish history. You know, I finally got around to watching The Lodgers, which was shot there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And, you know, besides being a pretty well done spooky movie, it was really cool to see a lot of the interiors of the house, especially since we've been discussing it so much. So go watch The Lodgers on Netflix if you want a good visual tour of the house and get yourself to the Hook Peninsula in County Wexford if you want to see it in person. (laughs) Well, my final thoughts are it's such a fascinating story. When I look at the big picture of this and the origins of it, I agree with you. One of the points that you made when we first started researching this, and you just made it again now, that really stood out to me was if you are doing some kind of cover-up to save face with your peerage or in the community or just in general, why would your cover-up have the devil hanging around your house? Not a Mm. good cover-up, because how is that better than having a member of your family who is a little different? I mean, yes, we said they didn't have a pronounced system for diagnosing or treating mental illness back then, but Ann Tottenham, if she was mentally ill, certainly wouldn't have been the first human being to have been mentally ill. Mental illness is very common, Mm -hmm. and it's not like she would have been the only mentally ill person in the country of Ireland. So there's definitely ways to address that. It does seem like a bit of overkill to say, oh, how can we cover this up? Oh, the devil. The devil came to the house and he comes back all the time. Not a good story. Not a good cover story. (laughs) So there is that part of it that to me doesn't seem like it necessarily would be a cover story. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's the kind of story itself that you wouldn't necessarily want to get out. It's very charming and romantic now, all these hundreds of years later. Yeah. But at the time, that's not the story that you want to tell. And The other components of this are, if you look at the more realistic or mundane possibilities for Ann Tottenham's situation, and it's fuzzy as to whether or not the family actually lived at the house, I can tell you that when we looked into the family tree of the Tottenham's and the Loftuses, that she was one of six children that we found. Were they all in the house at that time? There's a lot of people that aren't getting mentioned. Now, Chris Rush, in his book, he mentions her sister, Elizabeth, and Mm -hmm. he, he puts together a whole relationship between Elizabeth and Ann. Ann was older than Elizabeth. Chris Rush posits that Elizabeth 
however, married off and managed mm-hmm. to find a man and move out. You know, we talked to him about that in his interview. So whatever the dynamic was in the house when this card game might have taken place, there may have been a whole lot of other people in the house, including additional children. Not sure. But when we come back around to the idea that she had maybe a forbidden lover and that the lover may have been killed by the head of the household, or maybe she had a child out of wedlock and the child didn't survive birth or something else, we do have the stories of the skeletons. We do have the stories. And that's the part that I come back around to. What is the hard evidence in this story, not just circumstantial or hearsay? Well, we have the epitaph, for example, that is on Father Brodus's tombstone. Here lies the body of Thomas Brodus, who did good and prayed for all and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. All right, so that's written, contemporaneous information carved Mm -hmm. into stone that indicates that there's definitely a story that contains Father Brodus and Loftus Hall and the devil. Mm-hmm. That is written down in stone. So we have that information. That is fact that that's written there. Is it an exaggeration or what does it connect to? Is it some kind of joke? It seems unlikely to have been carved into Father Brodus's tombstone that that would be uh, some kind of joke or in- inside <laughs> joke. Or yeah, it, it seems I, like yeah. it relates to a true story of some kind. You were right. We don't know how much time passed after that fateful night and Father Brodus having to show up to perform an exorcism. But obviously around that time, because the activity was so great that the whole family was freaking out and they reached out to the bishop, which was a a move there, as we said before, not normally done by Protestants to Catholics. Exactly. And so that paints a picture of something that the locals at the time at least definitely believed happened. We also have the story of the crypt being opened and the coffin, the Tottenham family crypt, the coffin with the strange shape which is an unusual story, again, to make up. It's an unusual observation. It almost seems as though the observation was being made by somebody who maybe didn't know the story. They just came out and said, wow, that's a strange coffin. And then you make the connection. That must be Ann Tottenham's coffin because she was locked in a seated position or in a fetal position or whatever due to her mental illness, and that would have been how they buried her. I I know this sounds ghoulish, but I kind of wish that somebody had examined the remains to further prove that, because that, again, I think that was only during the mid-1940s when that right. happened. So right. not that it needs to be known, but they do believe that that was her. Right. And looking again at Chris Rush's book, which I highly recommend if you want to read a fascinating story with an interesting take on this whole thing. One of the things that he suggests is the possibility of an abusive relationship between Ann Tottenham and her father, Henry Loftus, and that he wasn't very kind to her. And he has nothing to base that on, as he said himself, but it was it was just speculation on the bigger picture of the story and he's turning it into a drama. But it is an interesting idea. If she was mentally ill and it was something he wasn't prepared to deal with and perhaps going back to the bigger picture, did she possibly have some kind of nervous breakdown after an encounter with a lover, whether that lover be the devil or some young man who wound up getting killed in a duel or she lost a child whose father was someone who wasn't the proper social class for her to have a relationship with, out of wedlock. There's so many things that could have driven her to the brink of insanity. Oh, absolutely. Going back one last time to the story of Pam Babcock and her boyfriend, Corey McFerrin, she was stuck on the toilet seat for two years. As it was reported, that was sparked by an argument between the two people who loved each other. I mean, they lived together for 16 years. And she still did, writing to the judge to be lenient. Please take mercy on him. This is my doing. And, you know, after an argument, she just decided she's not going to deal with this anymore. And somebody in that fragile, emotional, and mental state just decides to stay in one room. 
in a sitting position. And so the reason I pointed it out once again is that that's possible and we don't know what happened to Anne, but it seems there was a triggering event that was the start of her decline. Well, my final thoughts on this are that when I look at the bigger picture and I think about the possibility of an encounter with the devil or the the gentleman with the cloven hoof who shot up through the ceiling. For me, that component of the story seems very hard to believe. And I'm not saying I don't believe in the devil, and I'm not saying <laughs> right, I don't believe right. people can meet him. I'm just not convinced he was at this house. And that's my personal opinion. But here's what I do think. I believe that Ann Tottenham was at this house, and we know that. And I also believe she was a very troubled soul. And it's easy for me to believe in the possibility that her life didn't go the way that she wanted it to, and that it ended prematurely for whatever reason, and that for that reason, she is still hanging around Loftus Hall. That's going to wrap up our series on Loftus Hall. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're dark for the next two weeks, but our patrons will be able to find bonus material at Patreon during that time. We'll be back with a new show on April 13th. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Jennifer Napier. I'm Zachary Cachado. I'm Nina Rosenfeld. A.K.A. Skaz One. And I of T.E.R. Mission all day, every day. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.